0: back to bond by numbers today 1981's for your eyes only is going underneath the microscope with myself with the bfg and of course jeff over there in nepean ontario i want to say canada but that would be incorrect it's nepean ontario how are you Good. doing today doing great uh, doing great it's a nice sunny snowless day snowless
1: Although well, it hasn't been snowless for uh, a couple of episodes now has it no it's it's come it comes and goes like a a good canadian april will it's Mm. a jerk but right now it's okay
0: the cars are starting without much trouble
1: boots are turning into
0: sneakers is that right yes that is indeed correct and playoff hockey is all
1: around us yes it is yes it is in this city however that's uh (laughs) not a very good talking point right now no i suppose it isn't the poor senators (laughs) just didn't
0: get didn't get the job done did they we sure did not. But neither did the Blackhawks and nor did the Minnesota Wild or another handful of great teams. And right now we're looking at some potential upsets, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Wow, two yeah. games up on Tampa Bay. Very surprised. And Yeah, that- someone definitely used the Zamboni on those guys. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Josh. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> <laughs> trying to take part in something I don't know much about? Absolutely. No, you're trying to pull it back to what happens <laughs> in the film later on.
2: Yes. So One thing I want to mention about the, uh, the world of James Bond uh, this okay. particular week, yeah. it's been pretty bad for Bond girls, like uh, yeah. both uh, Goldfinger girls, Nadia Regine, who was the dancer in the opening of Goldfinger, and uh, Tanya Mallet, who played uh, Tilly Masterson, uh, they passed away this past, uh, last week. Now Regine, as you remember, she was the girl in the opening of Goldfinger, but she was also in For Mushu of Love. She was Karen Bay's girl. <laughs> and then and there's an expression, actually, that I use in life uh, from that movie, because I always say when I'm going back to work or whatever, back to the salt mines. Oh,
3: yeah. And
2: that's what Pedro Miranda says when he has to put down his work and go see his mistress.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I You, old, you remember man.
0: that film much better than I do. I remember the scene where she was kind of hanging over. Isn't, this, isn't that kind of around or after or before the explosion? Yes, it's exactly before the explosion. Right. Yeah, it's kind of right. like... A, uh, it's kind of like a foreplay, I guess you could say. It's coming back to me. It is coming back to me. But well, hey, maybe, maybe that's where we're going to end up at the end of this show. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I predicted and, uh, very uh, incorrectly that we'd be looking at a um, we'd be looking at the second Timothy Dalton film today. But boy, was I wrong! You certainly were. Yeah. It was this pretty stupid, just- it was a pretty stupid guess, really. I just passed a tanker truck on the highway, and I thought that was enough. So I was clearly wrong.
2: Oh yeah, the tanker truck oh, scene. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk about that one when we get to it. Yeah, yeah. We will indeed. Those those reality-defying de- uh, hydraulics. Hmm. So for your eyes only, uh-huh. uh, Rise of the Bonds. How could you? So I'm, I'm just making fun of the new Star Wars title.
0: By the way, I, as trailers go, that one's a little underwhelming. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm looking forward to being underwhelmed. Yeah, I haven't. Sorry, I didn't mean to spoil the uh, sensation well, for dark- you, but. You know. Not at all. No, not, not at all. all. I, saw it, I saw it this morning thinking, oh, this will be interesting. And it wasn't really. Like yeah. maybe, maybe I've just kind of had my had my time of Star Wars now for a while. Yeah, I find wow. I think
2: I think it's got to the point where, like, it's it's, it's, oversaturated. it's oversaturated now, yeah. you know? Like, you're getting, you're getting like There's, one Star Wars film a year now. Like, that never happened and, before,
1: you know? And, you know, and like 20 years ago, when it was still. Because that's kind of. When I got into Star Wars, it was about the, you know, 94, 95, because they were coming back with the 25th anniversary or the, you know, like, 20th anniversary of the films and the remaster of VHS and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it just, uh, and then once that happened and they started doing um, the remasters in the theaters, and then we started getting uh, the newer movies, anyways, they started getting more and more, and now everything is Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And it's it's definitely becoming oversaturated, but hey, it's making money. Why not? Yeah, exactly. It is making and to bring money, it
2: back, man. you know, to our discussion and whatnot uh, for, for, for Star Wars, um, I mean, there is a connection with Free Your Eyes Only, of course, yeah, of with, course. Uh, with Julian Glover, right? Yeah, yep.
0: General Beers. Oh well, and more than one connection, really, more because more. Empire Strikes Back was in cinemas At when this time. film was going Same. into production. I guess. Yeah. And I reckon it's only a matter of time before Disney owns the Bond, right? I, you know, this is a guess on my part, but I can see Broccoli <laughs> getting rid of this after Craig leaves. I, I really can. I can see that happening because Disney want to do expanded universes with everything, right? And I can True. see them. I can see them maybe doing something with the James Bond franchise if if it was to be given up what do you think do you think the bond will stay will stay firmly within the the broccoli wilson camp
2: i don't know maybe i think as long as wilson is around i'm not sure about dana
0: uh, about Barbara broccoli though mm-hmm. i'm not 100 sure um no i'm not either this is all conjecture this is all just speculation yeah it's not unfounded it's, it's really just, you know it's really, yeah.
2: it's really really hard to say i mean i just don't consider bond kind of the disney type you know what i mean well, I, I, mean, never, I
0: never thought Star Wars would go that way.
2: True, true, but at least they have they buy, they own Lucasfilm, right? So they own the rights to like they're the main distributor, of course. But Lucasfilm is still running the show in in, in terms because I mean you have like you know Kathleen Kennedy who who produces the the new Star Wars films. She has worked with Lucas and Spielberg in the past, and mm-hmm. she has control of Lucasfilm now, right? Right. So it's technically, it's still a Lucasfilm production in that way. Um. So. It, Disney is keeping its divisions, I think, of its different studios. Like, you know, you have like Kevin Feige running the the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you have Kathleen Kennedy running Star Wars. I know a lot of fans aren't huge fans of Kathleen Kennedy's vision. Um, and I know, I know a lot of Bond fans aren't fans of the current Broccoli vision either. Like, I know that uh, they kind of want things to go back to basics like it, used, like it used to be or whatever. Some of them miss, I guess, the Roger Moore feel of some of the films and don't really care much for this Bourne-esque kind of mm-hmm. idea that they're pushing with Craig. So it's it's hard to say which direction it will go into.
1: I'm a purist, so I kind of hope that they, it they, they it stays within the Broccoli's. You know, the, I, I want it to kind of stay as its own thing, but who knows what will happen. I'm with you, Jeff. Kevin, I would like I, to see I, it. I like, you know, the Bonds and what they are, what they stand for in film and sort of just said that you know, it's like a timepiece, right? It's like it's like Coronation Street. It just keeps going and going. It's mm-hmm. just been there forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's funny that I'm comparing it to Coronation Street, but just for something that has gone on and there's, you know, different generations of it, that's that's what I was getting at anyways.
2: Well, Bond does think that <laughs> the Countess Liesl is from
0: Manchester, so oh, yeah. I guess
2: that connects it a little bit.
0: <laughs> right, well, look, let's use that then, shall we, as our uh, segue into this one enough preamble right enough preamble indeed well look guys if we bring it back to 1981 for your eyes only where were you when this film was out do you remember seeing it for the first time uh, well where were you we were all
1: little tots of course i was a twinkle and uh-huh. my parents Ah, uh, you weren't even I was, around not yet not for another i was still uh, i guess i was
0: i was still cooking in the oven i suppose at that time yeah Chamber, you would have been well let me tell you boys i was out and experienced two decades already Ooh, oh, yeah. Two decades. I think yeah. you mean two years? I, I didn't know you were a vampire. I'm a 70s baby, so I got the best of that. Yep. And <laughs> I got three weeks of that. And then... <laughs> uh, uh, two decades. I see what you mean now. Okay. Very, oh, I get it. Clever, Sorry, very yes, clever. Very yes, yes, clever.
3: yes,
0: Yeah. But I remember watching this film with our grandmother, Josh, way back on uh, Reed Street, I believe, is where, where she lived, back in uh, Cornerbrook. Long, long time ago. and oh, we
2: this, the address.
0: Yeah, this was one of her uh, VHSs, the CBS Fox VHSs with... Um, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know what it was, but she used to do this popcorn, right? And to this day, I remember it because she would put, like... Granny was the only person I knew who had, like, you know, every kind of margarine or I don't believe it's not butter or whatever. Like, she yep. would have all that stuff in her fridge because I don't know if she thought that kept her healthy, which was very ironic, but... She would have had it for guests, too. Maybe she had it for guests, I don't know, but she had all this shit in her fridge and she used <laughs> to make she used to make popcorn man and she would it would be swimming in that stuff. Like it would just be this huge hot puddle yeah. well, of, should, uh, of buttery, oily know. grease. I remember her because popcorn. Of her,
2: I still melt butter.
0: I'll well, tell you, it's legendary, man, I, this, this popcorn. I'm, I'm probably describing it in quite disgusting terms, but... No, well, no, it's funny because at first I was like you, but I'm like, no,
1: I would love that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love it. It was popcorn. pretty good, and uh, I remember watching this film with a puddle of that. So this would have been yes. somewhere in like, I don't know, maybe I was seven, six or seven, you know, I don't know, yeah. something something like that. Probably shouldn't have been eating that shit, but, you know, I'm still here.
2: yeah. Sorry. It, 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 it come to, it's come to such a point probably that when you see like carol bouquet or, or julian glover you have that taste of popcorn of buttery popcorn in your mouth
0: <laughs> there are some things about this film that do kind of register with a part of my brain that i can't quite control if that makes any sense i, I know that this film was around when i was very very young and i remember seeing it when i was young but i don't remember details and plot obviously but strange yeah. things you know like i remembered i remembered roger moore's outfit like when he had that vest on you know towards the end the climbing i remember yes, our, oh, yeah, yeah that's right yeah. i remember i remember the uh, the car which i now understand is a lotus esprit sport like I, I get that uh now but there are things like textures and feelings and sort of objects in, in this film that register with me do you guys have any early memories of this film at all the the score I think is very triggering for me, and I don't mm-hmm. I don't mean tr- triggering like in the bad
2: way, just just in the sense of how, sure, it's a current yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it just it just kind of uh, the, that I think it, the score is so iconic to Four Eyes Only that it'll be always be associated with it in that way, right? Just mm-hmm. um, because how different it was compared to to the other Bond films. Um, I also want to point out, and you'll find this really amusing, is that I, I have discussed about how Grenio would send me the James Bond films, and that's how she got me into the series. Uh It got to the point where I was so excited for them and getting them all the time that my parents actually, like, when she sent me a new one, they hid it from me for, like, the longest time, (laughs) almost like a punishment for not, for getting up doing schoolwork or something like that. Uh, And I remember when Fear Eyes Only was sent to me, uh, I went through quite a gauntlet of, like, homework (laughs) and patience and, and, uh, I guess, annoyance on my parents' part just to see that movie. Wow, oh, was yeah. it was worth it. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah.
1: So was your version called for good boys only? For good boys only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Jeff, did you actually have to jump off a cliff to get it? <laughs> No, no cliff no cliff jumping, no keel hauling, nothing like that. I could totally see Josh like making like a like out of like couches and stuff where he'd be like pretending to reach and then, like a stuffed animal falls out and scares yeah. him, when he falls off. Like it's oh, like the dove scene. I knew where it was the whole time. I mean, the pigeon as John. I just has
2: didn't. Says. I just didn't get a chance to watch
0: it until they said that I could. That's all. There you go. Okay, right, Jeff. I remember uh, earlier in the series that w- when when we were talking about might have been Goldfinger. Uh, it may have been Diamonds or Forever. You were talking about watching these films with your dad when you were a younger guy, yeah. and yeah. you had you had said at the time that you don't really remember the Roger Moore era too well. Well, this is our second yeah. Roger Moore film now. Um, any of this come back to you, or was it still, or was it rather a,
1: a kind of fresh experience? Uh, this is actually a kind of a fresh experience, uh, okay, and cool. it, and it's and it's a good one, mm-hmm. um, and and I, I'm very excited to sort of explain how I felt about it. And uh, I, I must say though, this film is probably one of the strongest uh, more ones that I've seen so far. And I'm uh, just going by um, the other movies that he's done. I, this is uh, pretty solid, I, I, I would have to say, for myself.
0: Yeah, well, let's not prolong it any, any further. Josh, yeah. shall we open Cubby's Corner and uh, talk about the production of For Your Eyes Only?
2: I got some facts about, about the production. Um, the budget was $28 million at the time for, 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 for this movie. Um, we'll find out from you whether or not it recouped that budget. John Glenn was the director. He had been a third and then second unit director for the Bond films for a, pa- for a long time before. So this was the first time they gave him the helm. I guess they were confident with him that he could do it. And uh, John Glenn basically became the Bond director of the 80s.
0: Yeah, he did all of Moore's, didn't he? And Dalton's.
1: Yeah, he that's right, he did direct license to kill, right? John Glenn seems yeah. like a pretty cool dude. He, I like him, from what I've seen. Yeah,
2: he seems cut from the school of uh Peter Hunt in that way, right? He's a technical man. He mm-hmm. knows how to he knows how the how the yeah, how the sorry. camera works, he knows how the editing room works. So I think that makes really great experience for a, a director, you know, like the legends of like, you know, you have Terrence Young and Guy Hamilton, um, those guys were kind of – and Lewis Gilbert to an extent. Those guys, you know, were kind of put put were putting down the mantle now, right? And it's time for the Peter Hunt and then John Glenn. It's like it's the new guys that kind of took over and gave Bond a re-envisioning, I guess you could say. <laughs> it began production in September 2nd, 1980. That was the first day of principal photography, I should say, not the first day of production because pre-production is also a phase. Right. So September 1980 was the first day of principal photography. Um, that was when they were the first stuff they filmed was in the North Sea, um, doing the exterior scenes for the St. George's. Sets of pine wood would be constructed for the interior. The filming wrapped in February of 1980 at uh, Quarantino del Uh Carol Bouquet, um, she was cast uh, by uh, Eon for uh, the role of Melina Havelock. She was suggested by Eon's publicist uh, Jerry Giroux. Um For those who may have not, think, "Where have I seen you know uh, Carol Bouquet before?" Um, she was also the face of Chanel ah, okay. uh, for like the longest time. Mm-hmm. Really
1: yeah that actually makes sense now not that i ever bought a lot of that stuff back in the day but i remember i, I remember her seeing in the ads, and the and the ads and the, yeah, in, exactly in, in the, ads and the commercials yeah
2: that's exactly it. what was in the ads in the commercials and stuff in the 80s and early 90s even i think she, she yeah. extended to up to it yep. um julian glover he was suggested to play bond a long time ago he worked with uh, roger moore on the saint um, best known for his portrayals of general maximilian Viers in the empire strikes back walter donovan in indiana jones and the last crusade uh, he was the voice of Aragog the Spider in the Harry Potter films as well. I don't know if a lot of people know that. That's cool. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He, he's basically like the franchise king, uh, Julian Glover. And, yeah, really. And he recently portrayed Grand Meister Pycelle for six years on uh, HBO's Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, at the time of Free Rise Only, Glover was too old to play Bond, and and he so he was offered the part of villain Aristotle Christatos. I think he could have been interesting Bond back in the day, but I guess he was too young at
1: the time. So. Mm.
3: Yeah
1: interesting i i I like him as an actor i think he's good as his character but i just i can't see him as bond that being said, if you had told me that you know daniel craig from road to perdition was going to be bond i would have said you're crazy yeah he's like a skinny uh skinny little monster in that one yeah
2: glover's uh game of thrones co-star charles dance had his (laughs) first screen role in that film he played kloss one of Locke's men no no lines of in the film um dance would go on to be a prestigious character actor in films such as uh the jewel of the crown uh, the Golden Child. Oh yeah, uh, Alien Three, uh, Bleak House, just to name a few roles. Yeah. Um, That's the right. Yeah, was like, he
0: was um, he was great at Bleak House. Talking oh, Horn Man. Oh the yeah, lawyer. he was fantastic. Yeah, I remember because I was
2: just finished reading when I was just finished reading Bleak House, and I had read uh, a Game of Th- just the first book of of a Game of Thrones, I think, at the time before the series came out, and I was like, Dance would be a great Tywin Lannister, and then they cast him for the role, so I was actually pretty. Well, I have to see in House. I was pretty excited about that.
0: Are you serious? Um, you 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 mean you predicted you predicted his his hiring. I didn't predict it, uh,
2: but I noticed that a lot of fans uh, in the build up before the series started, um when we were looking at all the casting announcements and stuff like that and um there was a large bunch of people who were really excited that Dance was cast for the role and uh, I guess I had the same feeling because when I watched House, I said this guy would be great in the role. So, there you go. Moving forward. We have uh, the screenplay. This is Richard Melbaum doing his thing. And this time, this is Michael G. Wilson's first uh, um, con- contribution as a screenwriter. Now, he's always been kind of like an associate producer, being Covey Broccoli's grandson. Uh, sorry, not grandson, stepson. Uh, stepson. Yeah. But uh, after Moonraker, Eon wanted to bring Bond down to Earth, down to his Flamingian origins, you might say. Uh, Melbaum and Wilson adapted Fleming's B- two short stories, For Your Eyes Only, which has your Havelocks, your Hector Gonzalez, and the crossbow. Um, And then also Risico, an Italian-set story about smugglers that I guess they easily transported to Greece, featuring a character called Colombo, as well as a countess, and similar plot about the the smugglers as well. Um, The identigraph scene, where we see Q and Bond working together to identify Mm -hmm. uh, Emil Leopold Locke, is actually taken uh, from a passage in Goldfinger called the Identigram. Oh, that's cool. Just a modern update, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the Kill Holland sequence, as you probably know, Scott, it was adapted from the novel Live and Let Die. That's right. The climax of the novel, wasn't it? That's right. Olympic figure skater champion Lynn Holly Johnson was cast in the role of BB Dahl, Christos' Olympic protege slash cover. Uh, Michael Gothard was cast as a silent, remorseless killer Locke. Uh, one of the more creepy henchmen of the series i'd have to say you know i was talking about skyfall uh, one or two two episodes ago Mm -hmm. and talking about you know um how the guy who played patrice uh you know i mentioned he had a physical presence in the role and you kind of thought yeah he was okay but i mean it was not really anything spectacular would you say in terms of lock um that michael gothard really embodied a creepy guy on the screen who didn't really need to say a word yeah. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And I think his silent acting, I think, spoke volumes, I suppose, in terms of you know of conveying a character's presence without having to use any dialogue. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with that. Uh, Fiddle on the Root star, C- Shane Topol, or just Topol as he was known then, was cast as Milos Colombo, smuggler extraordinaire. Uh, his partner in crime, the faux countess Liesl, was played by Cassandra Harris, who uh, many know as the late wife of Pierce Brosnan. Um, Brosnan was actually a regular presence on the set. And even then, Cubby, Wilson, uh, and John Glenn saw potential for Brosnan as a contender
0: for the role of 007. How far away was Remington Steele at that point?
1: Oh, about a year uh, and a about half. About a year and a half. Yeah, I think it was started in 82,
2: maybe? Okay. Yeah, they mentioned that uh, Brosnan was just there for his wife, right? Yeah, sure, then sure. And then was, he was filming a movie, I think, in, in that area, just
1: a small movie, and then he got his big break in America, like, soon after. Which I think I think uh, the first season of Remington Steele was around 1982, so it's all very close. Mm-hmm. Um, acclaimed stunt driver R- Remy Julien was hired to execute
2: the Citroen 2CV versus Gonzales Crony's Peugeot 504's uh, madcap car chase we see earlier in the film. Wilson and Maybaum reinforced their, their will to get Bond back to basics by having the new Lotus Esprit destroyed as a hand wave to the audience that Bond will be relying on his wits in this film, not on his gadgets. In addition to the madrid chase sequence filmed on location in corfu actually he choreographed the motorcycle chase sequence in cortina uh willie bogner did the stunt work for that unit using his famed ski prowess and first person camera work he wowed us with in honor magic secret service and um when we get to it uh that ski jump scene in the spy who loved me ken adam uh was busy working on pennies from heaven to design for, for your eyes only sets so peter lamont who had worked his way up in the art department since the series inception. He took full control of the product design, production design, I should say, um, keeping with that mantra, you know, of bring Bond back to basics. So he stayed away from Ken Adams' stylized approach and designed realistic lived-in sets to give hmm. the film some additional verisimilitude. And it definitely does.
3: Yeah. It
0: does, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Surprisingly, the one far-fetched item Helaman was commissioned to create was the Havelock's miniature submarine, the yeah, Neptune. Yeah. Um, various models of the submarine were created for the film. The set of the ancient Greek temple was actually built underwater in the Bahamas, where a laminated Xerox sheets stood in for the temple's base, fastened to the ocean floor. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, lo- I love that bit. Just <laughs> goes to show with the basics, you know, you can MacGyver anything.
0: I've got a note on. Uh, I don't know if this is a good place to, uh, to to come into this, Josh, but I've got a note from Roger Moore's biography on some of the underwater shooting on the film, which I thought was quite interesting. I'm, I'm happy to share right, it now, hard. or I, or I can wait till later.
2: No, I think it's a good opp- opportunity to. Yeah. You know, we're on we're on we're on subject talking about the underwater filming.
0: I think you guys will find this interesting. I certainly did, just as a uh, a film fan. But you guys are much. Much more uh, switched on than I am, particularly Josh yourself as a um, uh, a film school graduate. So I think maybe you'll you'll appreciate some of the cinematography notes here. Okay. <clears throat> my vertigo wasn't helped by the fact that most of the climbing, or most of the climax building third act of the movie was spent with Bond climbing a rock face. I overcame my fears with a valium and a large glass of beer. I know you haven't got there yet, but I have to read this bit in order to get to the other bit. Uh, I overcame my fears with a valium and a large glass of beer. Rick Sylvester, who doubled for me as he had done in the pre-title sequence on The Spy Who Loved Me for the various dangerous slips and falls on the location, for which I then filmed some close-ups back at Pinewood. I had to suffer a four-foot drop at one point. I don't know what happened to Rick Sylvester's testicles when he did the full 20-foot drop, but for my little close-up part of it, well, let's just (laughs) say they were so flat you could have slipped them into a child's money box. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, here we go. There was <laughs> there was lots of underwater work too, which I didn't mind. But Carol discovered that she couldn't dive due to a sinus problem. This created some potential difficulties. However, the filmmakers came up with an ingenious solution. Using doubles, the second unit filmed various sequences in the water tank at Pinewood, and then John and his first unit filmed Carol and me dry on another stage. They used a wind machine to blow our hair, and turned the camera over at 72 or 84 frames per second, which, when it was played back at the regular speed of 24 frames per second, simulated underwater inertia. Derek met then took the negative and, with the aid of some Alka Seltzers and airlines, produced a stream of bubbles that was imposed over the negative when we opened our mouths. All clever stuff. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's, pretty, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Oh,
1: that, that's super impressive. And to be honest, it I works, just, doesn't it? Like, I,
0: I didn't know. It's,
2: it, one thing I came off reading about, learning about the production of this film, you know, how, how much of a wizard Derek Meddings was.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Roger Moore's got a lot of respect for him in the in the, in the books there that that he wrote. Nah, that, that, that's really cool because I remember uh, the first
2: time I heard Derek Meddings was uh, the Batman '89 by Tim Burton. He did a lot of the of that of those of the, the miniatures work and stuff like that for that film.
0: Well, maybe he's cutting his teeth here, you know, and doing these sort of adventurous so. experimental things for the for the Bond series.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think he, had, he was part of the miniatures they did for the Spy Who Loved Me, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Anyway, just, uh, just, to sh- uh, just just to share that with you guys, uh, back to you, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so going back to it, um, they hired L. Giddings. Uh, he, as we said, cut his teeth with the National Geographic um, f- film board he did it for underwater shooting. Oh, yeah. And he also worked on the film The Deep, um, directing all the underwater sequences. He did it for this film as well um you mentioned oh, you know oh, carol bouquet's deep. yeah oh neat yeah oh, i remember cool. it has like how they had like jacqueline Bisset. i believe it did. In it? yes yeah you're yeah. right um you mentioned carol bouquet's sinus issues and how she wouldn't how they had to end up doing the, the bubbles in the wind machine yeah. so thanks for the extra details on that that was hmm. really cool nice thanks neat, roger um and scott of course as his i guess his messenger and note, thanks elka seltzer and elka seltzer as well <laughs> yeah thank them the most yeah mm-hmm one thing about uh, that kind of plagued the productions in the early part of it um and not like plagued it but it was just a sad note is that um after a long illness bernard lee passed away uh rm oh yeah um mm. Kobe was adamant that lee would not be recasted for the role so they had james villiers come in as as bill tanner chief of staff they don't mention that it's bill Ch- bill tanner in the film he's just a chief of staff That's but um then they also had him team up with with the defense minister frederick gray you know in in, in the role and then said that m was on leave right because they didn't want to recast
0: bernard lee at that time it's neat that they've kept that name alive in the in the current incarnation of tanner yeah
2: it's it's true that like, oh, yeah. like, like him being a chief of staff or no just him in the daniel craig films yeah that's, mm-hmm. true.
3: that's a good point
2: yeah that's definitely true yeah they have what's his name uh rory kinnear oh, rory kinnear in oh, the yeah. role yeah exactly i did like uh the James Villiers in this role though uh, he had a great kind of like i guess kind of like an an exhausted kind of
1: overworked kind of british i guess um bureaucrat i guess you could say mm-hmm. his voice mm-hmm. was very like it, it's like of that that uh, people that age i found that 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 that's tell voice like 07 like you know yeah <laughs> Well, get cracking, Bond. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, that term, like The way he says get cracking, it's like, man, I can totally picture him sitting in one of the gentleman clubs with like a cognac, reading the paper and just telling him to get out because he's busy doing his crosswords. That's what I picture.
2: You know? Well, get cracking, 007. Get cracking. Mm, that was my Frederick Gray. Mm. He, <laughs> Minister? Does a, he does a lot of grunting, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah I I, I've always enjoyed his character. I remember him almost more than M sometimes because he's like in a lot of films for Frederick Gray. Especially in the Spy Who Loved Me, when they introduced him, I think is I think that was his first appearance. Oh, okay. So, Meteora is a region in Greece mm-hmm. uh, where the T- Church of the Holy Tr- Trinity had like a monastery, and there was a big kerfuffle with oh, the, yeah. with the locals and the monks that lived there because they didn't want the production to come and film in the monastery. Something a bad thing sort of developed. So that, that was supposed to be Christatis' mountaintop monastery fortress, known as Saint Cyril's, and it would have been had the monks occupying the monastery. Um, not protested the filming. Uh, as I said, a great scrap began to occur. Um, it was like the local citizenry were up against the monks. And this went right to the government courts. Um, Ehan simplified things by occupying a vacant mesa and constructing their own monastery. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> when in Rome or, with, you know. Or Greece. Greece or, exactly, or Meteora. Yep. The nail-biting freefall that Roger Moore's bond undergoes when Apostas kicks him off the side of the mountain um, as you mentioned, Scott and Roger Moore mentioned was Rick Sylvester, the same guy who did the freefall j- ski jump in Canada for the Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, there was like a, a, there was a whole thing where when he was falling, um, that even though like he was attached to a rope, he could possibly have been killed. Oh, so okay. they had to find some way to create oh, to, yeah. to, to to control the inertia of the stop. And Derek Meddings basically arranged some sort of apparatus where you have of a trough and sandbags that cushioned his fall. Hmm. And it kind of looked like a bit like a casket. And Rick Sylvester was saying that, <laughs> you know, in the background, I, I also have, you know, the cemetery um, where a funeral was being held, you know, in in, in the far distance. And then also, this thing you know, looks like a like a casket. And it's like, you know, You said, like, you, you don't have to be an English major, you know, to get the
0: symbolism <laughs> there. You know, you know what I mean? So was this thing, was this casket apparatus um, used as, as, as you said, a cushioning? But was was that a top, like, connected on top of the, the rock face
2: from which it yeah, was that's held, I,
0: from which you felt? That's from, that's from what I understand.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's and I almost guess when like went, a
0: soft anchor. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. Okay, right. I'm just sure, trying to picture sure. it in my head, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and going back to Derek Mennings again, uh, who also uh, did some of the miniature work uh, and forced perspective for the opening sequence um, where we have, like, a man, probably Ernst Stavro Blofeld, holds Bond hostage in the Univex helicopter uh, via remote control. It did not implicitly state, you know, it's that it's Blofeld, but the Tracy callback in the cemetery seems to suggest it because at the time, right. Blofeld and Spectre were the legal property of Fleming's Thunderball co-writer Kevin McClory. And there's always been a dispute between McClory and Eon about this. Uh, Eon and McClory had they been in that vicious lawsuit, uh, feel- and McClory feeling you know that you know Fleming kind of double-crossed him, which Fleming kind of did in a pretty mm-hmm. assholy yeah, way. Actually, he did. He did. Let's, yeah. yeah, call it out. It's
0: true. It's true. Yeah. It's it's very much true. So. That's quite interesting. Then, do we read this opening scene then as kind of like an Eon gesture to McClory? Like, here's your Blofeld down the down the pipe. Well, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. Basically, this way, this leads you know to to production of Never Say Never Again in eighty three, right? Which has yeah. Sean Connery as 007. and by un- by dumping you know the unnamed Blofeld unceremoniously down an industrial chimney, you know this is kind
0: of Eon's way of flipping McClory the bird.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. While at the yeah.
0: same time giving, I presume, giving audiences that wanted some closure for the Closure, exactly. for, for the diamonds are forever nonsense, um, exactly something to at
1: least say, okay, it's not great, but it, it, you know, it's a gesture towards what should have been done. Yeah. Exactly. One thing I have to say though is that when he puts him down like the the chimney there. That that chimney noise it, it that was about as annoying as the the car the car jump with the whistle the that we talked whistle. about last week. The slide whistle. Cuz it, it could like it just could have been a lot better if they just had like sound effects or just you know like I don't know. I just didn't like that Mr. Ba. I don't know. Yeah,
2: that was a bit cartoony. I yeah, I, was I like, definitely What is this like merry
1: like, melodies? Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was waiting for one of those like the the Iris like the old Iris outs they used to have like in Fritz Long movies and stuff like that. And why does Blofeld sound like Dracula there? His laugh was,
2: it, it, it bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They should have got just like Donald Pleasance or someone yeah, for no, that role, but I guess
0: I couldn't say it because oh. that would confirm that was Blofeld. Right. So they had to play around that, I suppose. I do love Moore's facial expressions in that scene though. Like very playful, very It reminded me of oh, yeah. Brosnan, like when Brosnan's having fun and he's got that sort of cheeky cockiness. Yeah. He's about got that him. smirk. Yeah. He's got a smirk knows- on that. I really like
2: in this scene. I guess maybe, you know, he's put a lot of the rage and anger behind Tracy's death behind him, so he could do that. But I kind of feel I wish Bond was a little more, I guess, not stoic, but, I don't know, just kind of grim when he he dumped him down there. You know, I think that would have played off a a little bit better. But I guess it wasn't Roger Moore's style, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? And not for the first time, actually. What you notice here is something we'll notice later, that while the tones aren't quite as disrupted here as they are and as confused as they were in the last film, um, there are still some issues with tone here, like where we're trying to be serious, but then we do something that doesn't quite work with that seriousness or, or lighthearted to, to cold. Like there are some things I wanna, I wanna pick up here with you guys, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the sequence, uh, when he shows the
2: helicopter entering the building, this was a miniature created by Derek Meddings using forced perspective. And this illusion was further developed when another helicopter mounted on a base inside the building, was, which was, was occupied by Roger Moore, was used. You know, when you see that scene where he takes control of the helicopter. Um, now, we go back, you know, to Roger Moore, you know, not being grim enough or whatever. And he was very reluctant about kicking Locke's Mercedes off the edge of the cliff. Oh, yeah. um, he said that it's a very, very Bond thing to do, but not a Roger Moore Bond thing to do. Right. I paraphrase him, but. Glenn was adamant it it gave more the necessary edge for the film's mission statement, bring Bond down to earth, bring him back to basics, right? Remy Julien, he occupied the Mercedes in place of Michael Gotard's lock, um, you know, winding around at the top of the cliff. And when Bond shoots the car and it goes, careen towards the edge, that was all Remy Julien. And then, of course, they put a dummy in the death scene. And that played out so well in one take, in one angle yeah, where you see it come out of the car that Glenn kept it in
0: there. Yeah, it, cool. it does look really good. It looks like the car's pooping this guy out. It's quite funny.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> even, even the car. And the good thing is, is that, him. to be honest, someone having going through that, like, the trauma of, you know, having a car go off a cliff, the ragdoll aspect of it being a dummy, it didn't, like, detract at all. Like, I'll have yeah. to say, though, the explosion of the Esprit, though, that one, like, looked like a... A dummy. (laughs) I loved
0: it. I loved that part, man. It did look like a dummy. It did look like a dummy, but I didn't care.
1: Because it looked like the the, when the guy blows up, right, it looks like, oh, look, they only decided to have, like, the top torso of a person because, like, the legs just have pants. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, did they just forget to put legs in the dummy? Like, I don't know. It's funny. I'm just kidding. But I hope you have a Josh, you want me to pick up on something
0: you're saying here? Again, going back to Roger Moore's book, but he, he talks about that moment when the script asks him to kick over the car and about John Glenn as a more serious director. You want me to share in on this bit now? or? Yeah, go ahead. Our new director was to be John Glenn, with whom I had very happily worked on so many other films. I felt I knew John well enough to express a few concerns about the script. He paused, looked at me, and said it wasn't up for discussion, as he had orders from above not to change any dialogue. I guess when one of the writers is also one of the producers, orders like this have more sway over the director. However, having played Jimmy Bond for eight years in four films, I felt I knew the character, just as I'd known Simon Templer and Brett Sinclair, and I knew that some of the lines were not ones Bond would say, but rather than argue in advance, I decided just to get on with it and address each issue as it arose. People have since said to me that For Your Eyes Only is a much more serious and realistic Bond film. Looking at it again today, I guess there is a slightly different tone to it, with a little less humor and a little more grit, but I wasn't really conscious of it at the time. John felt this, his first, Bond, should get back to more of the spirit of Fleming and develop a harder edge. Times and situations had changed, and Bond needed to react accordingly. The script said Bond was to toss the dove pin at Locke and then kick the car hard to force it over the cliff. I said that my bond wouldn't do that. It would be far better, I reasoned, if in tossing the badge in, I caused Locke to move, thus unsettling the balance of the car and sending him over that way. John Glenn was adamant that this man had killed my friend, and now I should show my anger and a more ruthless side to my character. I didn't sit happily with it, so we compromised. I tossed the badge in and gave the car a not-so-hard kick to topple it. Many critics and Bond experts have highlighted that scene as being an important one in the evolution of Bond on film. So maybe I was wrong. What do you guys think about that? I mean I'm I'm quite conscious, Josh, that your cubby's corner here has taken the shape of maybe some discussion of the film and the plots, but <laughs> but what what do you think about that? I mean do you, do you like this moment? Do you think it's good that that uh, he was directed to do this and that there was a bit of a skirmish about how this should be played off? This is Roger Moore, again, fighting against something, an instinct. He doesn't feel like his bond would do this. Same thing we got with Maude Adams, where he was asked to slap her around in The Man with the Golden Gun. This bond, according to Moore and his reading of the character, isn't isn't that way inclined. But do you think it worked? I, I do. I think it did, yeah. And I'm not speaking as a Bond film, but just in terms
2: of a movie and yeah, and, yeah. and how, you know, the momentum of the story and everything. And this guy, I mean, he killed his friend and I'm kind of surprised that they don't talk about it. He also like murdered Liesl as well. Like he ran her over with a dune mm-hmm. buggy, you know, like oh. that to me is even makes him even more deserving of, of death and just killing like a man who was kind of in the game, you know, who already who was a spy, you know, who knew his. What he was up? What he was up? I mean, I guess Liesel kind of knew what was going on as well because she was a bit of a uh, a fraudster, right? Like she uh, was a yeah, con. Yeah, a little bit.
0: Yeah.
2: She was, well, I- but I mean, even still, like I-, I think that the scene totally it was totally justified for Bond yeah. to do that, and yeah. I think it would look weak if he didn't do it yeah. if he didn't do anything to to lock.
1: I would agree with that too. I think. I mean, really, if you want to say like he was going to go over, I think that was important that they showed that it was already going over the edge with, with the the pin. And then he just helped it. Yeah. Like he, he was, was going to go over the edge anyway. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I think they did it so that it's not like, well. It kind of reminds me of like in Batman Begins when
2: they're in the final fight on the on the subway train or, or, the, or the elevator train or whatever. And um, Kristen Bale's Batman tells uh, Liam Neeson's Razzle Ghoul, he says – I don't have to. It's like I'm not going to. I don't. I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And then he just lets. You know, he doesn't save Rajal Ghoul from going over the edge on the train and dying in the explosion that follows. Yeah. Instead, he just like takes off and leaves him to die. Right. Yeah. So I mean, is that better or that? You know, that Roger Moore's Bond threw the pin in there and that's such dislodged it and fell over the edge. Like, was that a good way for them to possibly play it both ways? You know what I mean? Like, as long as Bond was the impetus to pushing Locke off the cliff, um, and throwing the pin in there, adding the, 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 the little touch of revenge as well, was that enough for them to do? Or did Glenn push it too far by having you know Roger kick it over? Because oh. when Roger, because yeah. when, when Roger kicks that car over, the mm-hmm. look on his face—I mean, he pulled it off well. He may not have liked it, but he definitely pulled it off oh, well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sure. he did. He did pull it off well, and I mean, the scene does view quite nicely. I like it. It's a good little suspenseful scene, and I don't have it's- a. Bra- problem with it but it's cathartic cathartic, but here's my problem with it and this is a problem i have with the film uh -hmm. gestured towards this point a few moments ago it has to do with with tone and consistency i don't think it's fair to give roger this or to give sorry to give bond this revenge moment and then deny melina of it later when she wants to kill mm -hmm. him because bond 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 tells her not to not to kill Christados, and i don't think that's fair because her vengeance
1: should be much bigger than his yeah, because yeah. it was her parents.
0: Yeah, well, this is it. Like, wh- and one can argue all sorts of things. I know why Malina's in the story. I mean, ultimately, her revenge doesn't matter once Bond gets in because he then slows everything down. But this is a resourceful character that got there on her own, that met yeah. him and saved his ass. And it's not it's right. right. It's not right that this guy who was allowed to exact his revenge in a man's world. Okay, fine. Let's call it what it is. Then denies yeah. this woman a chance to get what's revenge for the death of her family. I mean, that I don't. I don't like that part. I really don't like I don't I don't see that these scenes sit, with, no, it well, it sit well with each other yeah, yeah very I, I, hypocritical. it's funny
1: I I totally had uh missed that but no, I would agree with you on that it is hypocritical and it, it's not fair
0: but is that is that John Glenn as a screenwriter saying let's just play it because it's a Bond story and we'll have Bond protect the girl like that's yeah, it just to seems to me that he plays God. He plays God in an unnecessary and and a really unjustified way here with this other woman's future or with this other with, with yeah. this other character's right to uh, to have some vengeance. If if this is a film about vengeance and getting some, surely hers needs to be higher than his. But yes, I definitely agree with that. We're not interested in valuing the woman's narrative here, are we? Really?
2: No, we're definitely not. <laughs> not in this particular oh, film, especially when the posters that were cut for this film, you know are more revealing than any scene that Molina has in the entire
0: movie. Oh, that's true. Eh? Yeah. The only people, hint you to her the is the, was, is the crossbow.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, and, and like her butt cheeks are all right in full center. Right. And then like Roger Moore's like between her legs, like just in the far distance, like oh, of the poster. Yeah. God it, was, it was, it caused, it caused a lot of uproar. Like a lot of the newspapers refused to print the whole ad up, apparently at hmm. the time. Anyway, um, sorry, pal. Keep, keep her running. You brought up the revenge thing uh, as a devil's advocate. You you could consider that Bond did not want her to sully herself, you know, by digging those two graves, so to speak. Um, oh yeah, right. with the revenge, right? Yeah, that's right. But I mean, that's ultimately her choice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, you could you could you could write it in the sense where she doesn't kill him, and then and then she lets him, and she lowers her crossbow, and she doesn't do it. But she
0: never even got that choice, and that's the important part. It is that, yeah, you're exactly right. I think okay, fine. If they had written that into the narrative, which they kind of tried quite squirrely to do. In that sleigh scene, you know, which was just a little over romanticized, but where he was trying to say, no, you have to go back and wait. You just go back and wait. I promise I'll come for you. I I get why, you know, Bond doesn't want Locke killed yet, because Locke is going to open up the rest of this story plot for us and for him. But... You know, it's just like as soon as she meets him in, in uh, Cortina, he then becomes the, no, you have to do this. You must go back. Wait for me. I'm the man. I'll solve this. When the time's right, I'll call for you. Then you can have your little revenge. You can come play along on our man adventure. And I just yes. think that the way the script treats Melina's character, and I, look, I totally get this. We're 2019. This film is 1981. She's got a really yeah. strong first half in this film. But after that Cortina scene, she is she's just there. She's eye candy in the script and in the film and it really disappoints me because she is my favorite Bond girl to date and the way that the second half of this film treats her as just a tag along we totally forget that Bond is using her resources and and her right right to the story to, to do everything. I really don't like this and I would love to have seen john glenn who okay was maybe under the producer's thumb as his first film out like all these sorts of things do play into it as you say the devil's advocate the apologist but i really feel like this film does melina's character a disservice because she's tough as nails in the story that fleming wrote there's no reason why 20 years on she couldn't be in the film as well exactly and you
2: compare her to you know like i guess the modern melina havelock would probably the closest we had to that in the in the new bonds would have been Camille in Quantum of Solace, and even to the point yeah, where yeah, she of. gets her yeah. revenge without Bond's intervention. You know, you know what I mean, and she's still able to, you know, have her own relationship with Bond in a way. That's right, yeah. And, uh-huh. and she gets to walk away from Bond as well. She doesn't have to go into play his game or whatever. She they go they go their separate ways. And That's right. I really think in the modern time that Melina Havelock would have been given justice, but yeah. unfortunately. The mores of that time where when it was where I was
0: only was made you know just wouldn't allow that to happen mm-hmm. and and you're right and we have to look at these things in context but maybe maybe yeah. that's exactly it 20 years on she would have had a better treatment and we would have had a scene where like craig did for um for that character in uh quantum you know showed her how like here's your gun go ahead and do your job like i'm not going to get in your way just be careful type thing you know
2: US, yeah. a lot of like uh, baby boomers or people our age, even you know, who are into the Bond films, a lot of them have Melina Havelock as like in their top five or even the first Bond girl uh, rankings. And I think this is kind of the beginning, I guess. We, we, we uh, almost, she's almost like a pioneer, bouquet's uh, Melina Havelock, in the way how she's kind of like, you know, the female badass who can take care of herself, you know, like she pioneered that. And yeah, the story kind of strips like strips that from her in the end you know, even to the point where she's a token love interest by the end of the film yeah um, it, it it just seems that um, it was she it was the beginning of an evolution I guess in terms of writing female characters in action movies that she kind of
0: started I, I guess you could say
3: mm-hmm.
0: sure yeah well, and for that reason let's let's celebrate it.
1: I was because exactly. I was gonna say she's probably my favorite bond girl just because she's not just like you know something to look at she she saves them multiple times she's got. She's got a you know an, an understandable revenge story. Yeah. Yes. And and she's good in a pinch. I mean you know she you know she had the car, she had the crossbow, and you know she was actually uh, she helped him a lot. I mean she saved his ass in a few, few situations, and so um, I would I would have to say that she's probably my favorite going for yeah so far. She's mine, yeah. yeah. And I liked it because they gave her. Some time. I mean, they didn't. They, I mean, they didn't write her amazing, but no, no, it, it gave her more screen time and, and more importance than other Bond girls to the day, to that you know up to yeah. that point. So
2: I don't think you know. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that because that's not true. Because you know our memories have changed. You know, up to the present day. But you know, when you think of like you know strong Bond characters in the film F- Bond, strong Bond female characters like Vesper Lind mm-hmm. and uh, Camille or um, I guess even to the extent Jinx or, you know, Michelle Yeoh's character, I think Carol Bouquet's Melina started that. Oh, uh, yeah, you could, I can could see well, that. Pussy
0: Galore's character had written
2: agency. Uh, that's a good uh, point. Uh, okay, that's that's
1: kind of true. Yeah.
0: But I, I guess that she, I mean, she did have agency. This is a tougher Pussy Galore, but not quite as tough as or as liberated as Michelle Yeoh. You know, she's kind of stuck yeah. in the middle here. But yes. I, I do like her. She's she's really very attractive woman. She's stunning, and she can act as well. I know that she doesn't yeah. have a yeah. lot to do, but what she does do, I think she does really well. And yeah. at the risk of getting too far ahead of myself, I'll just leave it at that, I guess, before we get into scoring. We've got a long way yeah. to go yet. When we were talking the man with the golden gun, uh, we had discussed the repatriation of Cubby and Saltzman, and I had thought that it happened in a later film but it actually happened here with for your eyes only remember you had said that you uh, the reason saltzman left after the man with the golden gun was because of his finance problems but there was also some kind of i don't know if i go as far as a bad blood but there was an issue with it well it was here at the premiere of for your eyes only that that bridge was uh w- was repatched and rebuilt oh that's l- good yeah i got a little bit I here from you- from roger moore's biography uh, which we've already read from but he writes that the premiere of For Your Only, in aid of the Royal Association for Disability and Rehabilitation, was held at the Odeon Leicester Square and was attended by Princess Margaret and the newly engaged Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. I believe it was their first film premiere, and certainly one of their first public events since becoming engaged. At Topol's bidding, Cubby invited Harry Saltzman to the premiere. The two former partners had not split on the most amicable of terms, but they greeted each other as old friends. I know Harry was touched to be there and to feel that he was still a part of Bond. That was very nice and a very big gesture from Cubby.
2: Cubby seems to be a tough guy, but he seems a very from what i read about him, a very warm hearted. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, this, uh, when I was reading on, about Free Rise Only, during the sequence in, at, at the uh, warehouse in Albania, they were using blanks for the big shootout. And Topol oh, yeah. actually got shrapnel, like right in his face, like right above his eyebrow. And he was, it was like, and if you watch some of the special features, there's like shots that Michael G. Wilson narrates of the footage, or you can see the blood streaming down the side of his face. And oh, Cubby basically wow. grabbed, grabbed Topol... And just basically grabbed him and just ran to the nearest doctor that was nearby and made sure that he was all taken care of or whatever. So uh, there's a lot of good stories about Cubby that's, that, that, that's out there that, you know, even though he, this was a guy who was born very poor and lived on and, and helped his mom raise a farm in New York after they moved from Italy. And they ended up, you know, and he ended up being the way that he was and being modest the way that he was because he was kind of a guy who climbed his way to the top. Right. But he never really looked down on people. And he was always a fatherly figure and he also had issues though too with like people like george Lazenby, who had a bit of an attitude and he did not like that whatsoever so he's very unconventional type of movie producer that you hear about
3: mm. yeah
2: and and uh, just to kind of end the part here with cubby's corner i just want to mention I, met, I i put this on i put this on our facebook page uh has anyone actually heard blondie's version of, of for your eyes only yeah it's um, great yeah. it's a good one it's very different eh? very different um Apparently, though, uh, Blondie would have got that role for the film uh, had she not had decided that she wanted to use her own version. But Eon wanted her to, to do the Bill Conti version that Sheena Easton sung. And I guess she didn't want to do a cover, but, but, but anything but her own. So she refused the, uh, the, the um, uh, I guess, the opportunity.
3: Hmm
0: you know artistic integrity you gotta you gotta give her credit for that she didn't want to sell out i guess in that sense she didn't want to lend her voice and her talent to something she didn't like or something that wasn't her own crafting yeah
2: exactly like you know she was kind of like uh you know, she was at the time Blondie and you know, Deborah Harry. She was kind of like on the forefront of like, I guess, mainstream punk, right? So yeah. she still wanted to get, have that street cred of being able to say, you know, I could do stuff like that, I suppose. And I guess it was a good move for her in terms of uh, her
0: fan base and whatnot. I think so. And, and insofar as the song still exists and you can still find it, she's probably not really lost a lot from not having done it.
2: Yeah, it's on the album Hunter.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, here's what uh, Roger Moore says about Easton. Sheena Easton was engaged to sing the title song and when she arrived at Pinewood to meet the team, John and Maurice Binder were so taken by her beauty that they thought of including her in the opening titles. She became the first ever singer to feature and as such, Cubby had the publicity, people engage her for promotional interviews. I did a number of interviews in New York too and was always asked if I'd be back for another film. I think I was generally diplomatically vague as if I'd said yes and For Your Eyes Only was a flop, they wouldn't want me back. However, while taking part in an interview at NBC, the journalist asked the same question. "'Well,' I said in an attempt to pretend I hadn't been asked it a hundred times before. "'At the end of every James Bond film, they say James Bond will return. But don't go as far as to say Roger Moore will.' "'Oh,' she said. "'And what will James Bond be returning in?' "'Octopussy,' I replied. There was a pause. "'What?' she asked. "'Octopussy,' I said again. "'You can't be serious.' "'What's wrong with Octopussy?' I asked. "'It's an Ian Fleming title.' She seemed very embarrassed and really thought I was fooling around. Would I? Always the raised <laughs> eyebrow.
2: Always the raised eyebrow, indeed.
0: That's that was Roger Moore's trademark, for, yeah. for sure. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can I, I kind of see you know uh, a journalist being like, "What octopussy?"
2: Yeah, she probably pissed off that she wasn't researched enough for it, or or she could probably get mad at her like gopher or whatever. Goes, why didn't you give me that you know information? <laughs> So I mentioned the $28 million budget this film had. Yeah. Um, how was the reception to for your eyes only? Was this um, bringing Bond back to basics? Was this a popular
0: uh, thing? Like, did it have a claim? Like, what, what was the situation here? Well, why don't we close Cubby's Corner and see what the critics thought. All right, well as you rightly say, Josh, 28 million was the budget then. That's about 73 million now, I think in today's money. Box office at the time pulled in 195.3. So yes, it certainly did recoup its cash. Uh 510 million today's money. return on investment for for your eyes only, 11th most lucrative film in the series, 598% dollar for dollar. Wow. Hmm. So we're talking, yeah, big moneymaker, but Roger Moore's films were big moneymakers like Connery's before, and this franchise continues to earn money whether you love the films or not. They are crowd pleasers. At least they get bums in seats. Yes.
2: Uh, what, what I was really surprised to notice, I mean, I'm not totally surprised because, you know, the content within them, but I've noticed a
0: lot of the Roger Moore films were not critically acclaimed. Yeah. Let's see what the critics thought of this one then, shall we? Okay. Vincent Canby writing in the New York Times, June 26th, 1981. Forget about the relationship of this planet to the sun. Whenever possible, summer officially begins with the release of a new James Bond film, that is, today. For your eyes only, the 12th in the phenomenally successful series of movies that was initiated almost 20 years ago with Dr. No. Nothing else in our popular culture has endured with such elan as Agent 007, whether played by Connery, Lazenby, briefly, or the incumbent, Roger Moore. Not the least of the feats of the Bond films is their having outlived all the imitations, particularly the Matt Helm and Flint pictures. For Your Eyes Only is not the best of the series by a long shot. That would be a choice between Goldfinger and Moonraker. But it's far from the worst. It has a structural problem in that it opens with a pre-credit helicopter chase in, over, around, and through London, which is so lunatic and inventive that the rest of the movie is a hard put to achieve such fever pitch again. Mr. Moore shows no signs of tiring, his bond retains an ageless cool that remains outside of time. The screenplay by Richard Maybaum and Michael Wilson is occasionally lazy, allowing us fleeting moments of introspection when logic raises its boring head. One of the secrets of the best of the bonds is the manner in which we, the audience, are made willing accomplices to illogic. For Your Eyes Only is the first feature film to be directed by John Glenn, who has been the editor and second unit director on several earlier Bond pictures, including Moonraker, for which he directed the spectacular free-fall flight sequence that opened the movie. Considering Mr. Glenn's experience as an editor, it's surprising that some of the action sequences in For Your Eyes Only, especially the underwater fight between Bond and a villain, both in diving suits, should be more confusing than suspenseful. In a James Bond movie, a little ambiguity of this sort is too much. Most of the time, though, For Your Eyes Only is a slick entertainment in which Bond's mission is to locate a sunken British spy ship, one that contains some potentially lethal equipment sought by the Russians and that went down perilously close to the coast of Albania. The film, which was shot on location in Greece, Corfu, and the Italian Alps, contains a great deal of natural scenery in which Bond swims, dives, skis, drives, falls, and flies, from which he emerges never scratched so badly that he can't carry on. For Your Eyes Only is not... The spaced-out fun that Moonraker was, but its tone is consistently comic, even when the material is not. It has no villains to match Goldfinger or Jaws, but it has one of the most appealing leading ladies of any Bond picture. She's Carol Bouquet, the tall, dark-haired beauty who played one half of the title role in Louis Brunel's That Obscure Object of Desire. The supporting cast includes Topol, who can't still resist playing cute when straight would be better. Lynn Holly johnson as a champion ice skater, which she is, Julian Glover as the principal bad guy, and Michael Gothard, who gives a new evil connotation to the wearing of octagonal-shaped glasses. The film's very funny postscript includes one of Britain's most famous married couples, played wickedly by John Wells and Janet Brown, and Maurice Binder's opening titles, always one of the fancier features of the Bond movies, are still fantastic. So there's the New York Times.
2: Now, just uh, Janet Brown and John Wells, they're the ones that played Thatcher and her husband, yeah oh yeah okay
0: uh what would you like next guys james baradinelli for real films empire magazine or roger ebert well oh, uh, empire magazine is a pretty uh, is a
2: good modern day um look at like uh cineculture so I, I i
0: i choose empire for this one okay where does it sit is it just promoting film and entertainment industry or does it actually have a critical edge it does have a
2: pretty crit- a, it does have a pretty critical edge they're more open-minded I think than some critics are like in the New York Times for example or The New Yorker like the more prestigious magazines who look down upon you know films such like like that Empire likes to t- likes to you know do articles about okay so I think Empire is a, is a good balance it really right, well. provides a good balance to
0: like the more elite criticism that's out there well Ian Nathan rated this two out of five stars. With, okay. moon, with Moonraker tipping the Bond balance into absurdity and critical derision, the knee-jerk reaction was to reel in the comedy and flash hairy high-tech gumbo for a leaner, more realistic form of 007. Sadly, the series was still encumbered with Roger Moore's portly incarnation, an actor who never found a way of playing the famous role other than withdrawal insincerity. The film, stylishly wired in places, still ranks as one of the most forgettable ones on record. The all-new moody feel kicks in from the very beginning, where we find Bond visiting the grave of his dead wife. The winking is out, in comes Edge. When 007 arrives in a cloudy Greece, he hooks up with Carol Bouquet's beautiful avenging angel. It transpires, Bond's target, elusively known as Contact, could well be the man who killed her parents. Personal vengeance is a striking theme for this franchise, but it doesn't sit well. As the film labours to generate plot and character... Only vaguely keeping tabs with the chirpy traditions, you start to wish it would cut loose and gave an excruciating quip. Moore just looks confused. He obviously wants to do his thing, then hit the bar for cocktails, but John Glenn is nagging him to add a roughness to the slick exterior. Equally, it just doesn't fit. The news is clear. There's only so far you can push a Bond before it breaks. These films are rigid and inflexible, and when it finally does relent to partake in standard Bondian thrills, it's like a relief. A silly car chase with Bond piloting a clapped-out two CV is hilarious, and a terrifying cliff approach to a monastery, for the underwhelming conclusion, hits toward the glamorous sweep of locations so sorely lacking. And Bouquet does a brittle, intelligent Bond girl for once, which could be why no one remembers her either.
1: Hmm. Okay.
2: There's, I don't know, like, I don't think that was a good review in my personal feeling of the, there's too much, there's too much bias in there. Right from the words of that, he doesn't like Roger Moore in the role. So that colors his – he's not looking at it objectively. He's, I, well, I guess he is because he's he's saying Roger Moore is not good. So I wouldn't be surprised if the, the reviews that he does for the other Bond films, that are, the other Roger Moore films, are going to probably be
0: similar in that way. Yeah, it does sound like he's got a bit of hate for Roger
3: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't see him as por- uh, I mean, partly. I, Let me come on. I see where he's coming from in terms of like uh, going back down to earth, but also, sure. he. I think he was. I think in a way, he's commenting on the tension existing between Glenn and I guess the the production's mantra of bringing Bond down to earth or back to the basics, and then you know the
0: Roger Moore era. Well, shall we move from one Roger to another then, and see what Mister yeah. Hubbard thinks? Okay, sure. his his review from nineteen eighty one. Two stars, and remember, Ebert rates his films out of four stars. For Your Eyes Only is a competent James Bond thriller. Well-crafted, a respectable product from the 007 production line, but it's no more than that. It doesn't have the special sly humor of the Sean Connery Bonds, of course, but it also doesn't have the visual splendor of such Roger Moore Bonds as The Spy Who Loved Me or Special Effects to Equal Moonraker. And in this era of jolting inspired visual effects from George Lucas and Spielberg, it's just not quite in the same league. That will no doubt come as a shock to producer Albert Broccoli, who has made the James Bond series his life's work. Broccoli and his late partner Saltzman all but invented the genre that Hollywood calls event films or special effect films. The ingredients, which Bond popularized and others imitated, always included supervillains, sensational stunts, sex, absurd plots to destroy the, or rule the world, and of course a hero. The 007 epics held their patent on that formula in the late 60s and early 70s, but they're growing dated. For your eyes only, it doesn't have any surprises. We've seen all the big scenes before, and when the villains turn out to be headquartered in an impregnable mountaintop fortress, we yawn. After Where Eagles Dare and The Guns of Navarone, and the hollow Japanese volcano that Bond himself once infiltrated, let's face it, when you've seen one impregnable mountaintop fortress, you've seen them all. The movie opens with James Bond trapped inside a remote-controlled helicopter being guided by a bald sadist, by a bald sadist in a wheelchair. After Bond triumphs, the incident's never referred to again. This movie involves the loss of the secret British code controlling submarine-based missiles. The Russians would like to have it. Bond's mission: retrieve the con- retrieve the control console from a sunk ship in the Aegean. The movie breaks down into a series of set pieces. Bond and his latest Bond girl, long-haired, undemonstrative Carol Bouquet, dive in a mini-sub engine in a complicated, and, uh, engage in a complicated chase through the back roads of Greece, crawl through a sunken wreck in wetsuits, are nearly drowned and blown up, etc., etc. For variety, Bond and Bouquet are dragged behind a powerboat, a shark bait, and then Bond scales a fortress mountain. A fortress guard spots Bond dangling from a rope thousands of feet in the air. What does he do? Does he just cut the rope? No, sir, the guard descends partway to tantalise Bond by letting him drop a little at a time. The rest is predictable. In a movie of respectable craftsmanship and moderate pleasures, there's one obvious disappointment. The relationship between Roger Moore and Carol Bouquet has never worked out in an interesting way. Since the days when he was played by Sean Connery, Agent 007 has always had a dry, quiet, humorous way with women. Roger Moore has risen to the same challenge, notably opposite Barbara Bach in The Spy Who Loved Me, but Moore and Bouquet have no real chemistry in For Your Eyes Only. There's none of that kidding byplay. It's too routine. The whole movie is too routine. There's Ebert's take... Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't entirely disagree with with what he's saying about Bouquet. I mean, I, I think of, I think of Barbara Bach, from what I remember, as one of the poorest performing Bond girls. But Roger Moore was playing up really well in that film, I think, to what the script was asking him to do because it was in his wheelhouse, it was in his comfort zone. Here, yes. I agree that while Carol Bouquet is a much better actress and a much more deserving Bond girl even though she probably has less agency than triple X in the film, the spy who loved me, I think that the the script never allowed them to come together properly. So I do kind of see what Ebert is, is criticizing here with their relationship as written.
2: Well, I'll put a point on that Scott. Sure. Um, Richard Maybaum even has admitted up to this day that he was very unhappy with the, with the relationship uh, with Um, Bond and, and Melina in the film. With um, the love story, he said was very weak and disappointing for him in the end.
3: Hmm.
0: Wow. Well, there you go. So, uh, I mean, well, three reviews. Two critics have talked about that, and we have talked about it. We're talking about it. I, I did have another review there from Real Films by James Bernard in Italy, but hey, that's okay. Let's just do three and uh, and move on because we got we got some stuff to talk about, boys. That's we certainly do. We certainly do, sir. So there you go. Seventy three percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, though, so the public still like it. And I think as yep. Roger Moore said himself a few moments ago, quoted, you know, this is regarded as an important Bond film in some ways and shades. I think
2: that, I think you can look at Free your eyes only in this way, is that um, because it's a Roger Moore film, what they're trying to do with the, with this movie did not really work fully in the end, but it is kind of good admiral intention, I guess you could say to bring it back to the basics and that's what they tried to do with this movie and i respect them for it in that way i'm trying to go back to the flamingian i guess uh shades
0: you know like just to cast that little bit of edge to it to everything
3: mm-hmm.
0: well i'm looking forward to your plot summary that's going to lay out the strokes for us and then i know jeff's got some cool stuff on the greek civil war too which is going to be great to hear so over to you josh plot summary for us please <laughs>
2: Right. So, Bond enters the cemetery and with the reminiscing bittersweet air leaves flowers at the grave of his late wife, who we all previously saw tragically gunned down by Irma Bunt and Ernst Stavro Blofeld at the denouement of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. A priest informs him that his work sent a chopper to pick him up. Stoically, Bond heads off from the cemetery into the sky where the helicopter is suddenly hijacked by Ernst Stavro Blofeld? I don't know... The pilot is, le- is electrocuted via headset and Blofeld, now in a motorized vehicle. White Persian in his lap. <laughs> uh, I should say, Blofeld in a motorized wheelchair, I meant to say. Um, with a white Dr. Persian. Claw? Yeah, Dr. Claw, yeah, exactly. <laughs> white Persian in his lap um, with the control console. He takes control of the helicopter, uh, attempting to terrorize 007 as they fly through the factory yards and chimneys of some, like, some futuristic Dickensian nightmare. After some hairy hit situations, Bond does manage to get control of the helicopter and finally avenges Tracy by dropping Blofeld down an industrial chimney pipe as if he were a debonair roadrunner disposing of wily e. Coyote. <laughs> er- yeah, Ernestus it does have Blofeldius. that feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ernestius Blofeldius, super genius. <laughs> 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 or, or not as the cartoon crash seems to indicate, but don't worry, his pussy scattered off long before his wheelchair was impaled by Bond's helicopter piloting.
1: And You can see like Bond paint like a black, like a black hole and then he falls through <laughs> it. <laughs> Opening
2: titles. Hey, we actually get to see the singer in this one. No sign of lily pads blocking nipples in this one as the first Bond film of the 80s, Free Eyes Only seems to be getting more risque. Now they're just blurring out the nipples. More superfluous papillae from Morris Binder. Lots of bubbles and fish, too. Sheena Easton is pretty, though, in a short 80s haircut kind of way. She kind of looks like the cover of Rio. That's foreshadowing for you folks at home. (laughs) Okay, after that exciting and then suddenly cartoonish pre-title sequence, we get some serious stuff here. The St. George's is a British spy ship and it's sunk by an old school mine complete with spiky protuberances. Mm. It's pretty awful watching this efficient crew of intelligence analysts electrocute and then drown. One of them is chained to a device called ATAC, which looks like an old Atari. The device has a self-destruct button, but damn, that plot, the officer can't seem to reach it. With all (laughs) those tons tons of water pouring on top of them, probably didn't help either. Mm. We're a guest of Frederick Gray, Minister of Defense, and then to General Gogol in Moscow. We transition to even more sadness when our heroine, Melina Havelock, arrives via chartered seaplane on her father's yacht. Her father is a marine archaeologist and he lives aboard the, 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 the Triana off the, course, off the coast of Corfu with his wife and his parrot, Max. Melina can't wait to give her parents gifts from the mainland Greece, but the plane suddenly returns as she's about to go below deck. The plane revealing machine guns straits the deck of the Triana, killing Timothy Havelock and his wife. Dramatic music plays. Melina silently swears vengeance for whoever killed her beloved parents. Bond is called into M's office. The matter is so urgent he doesn't even have time to properly flirt with Moneypenny. Bond learns that M is on leave. Rest in peace, Bernard Lee. And Bill Tanner, chief of staff, is there with Minister Gray. Operation Undertow. The St. George's sunk, equipped with a tac tracking system that they don't want the dirty commies to get a hold of. To find the St. George's, the Brits hire archeologist Timothy Havelock to locate the wreck, but someone gunned him down. The daughter ID'd the killer as Hector Gonzalez, a Cuban hitman living in a villa outside of Madrid. Bond is to interrogate Gonzalez and find out who hired him. Piece of cake, right? Bond is now en route via his Lotus Esprit to Gonzalez's villa bill conti's score reminds us that we are in spain fun fact it's actually court view. Yeah. bond attempts to pull off the above paragraph but he's a jump by gonzales's men and brought to the assassin who was having a very early 80s pool party in the vein of koskoff and necros at whitaker's place bond observes some creepy dude handing Locke a suitcase of money but his capture sticks craw In that development gonzales dismisses bond with contempt and her heroes led away to probably be shot Gonzales, indifferent to the misery of others, decides to take a dive into his swimming pool, but belly flops into the drink, a crossbow bolt in his back. Ooh. Girls scream, Bond grabs a beach umbrella and does some damage. He <laughs> leaps over the wall and runs off into the brush. Gonzales' employer takes the briefcase of mullah back because Gonzales surely won't need it anymore. Gonzales' men pursue Bond and the assassin through the estate grounds. One almost has Bond dead in his sights, but a crossbow bolt ends it. It's Melina Havelock armed with a crossbow. Bond grabs, grabs her by the hand and they head towards his Lotus Esprit. But Gonzalez's douchebag men take part in a Grizzly Club commercial when they decide to break into the Lotus. The would-be carjackers in the car itself are incinerated by the overzealous security system. Bond hopes Molina has a car and then wishes he hadn't when he sees the yellow Citroen just sitting there all Herbie the Love Bug waiting to be loved. <laughs> Bill Conti provides some rollicking, funky car chase music to a pretty awesome car chase through the Spanish countryside and Bond and Molina evade Gonzalez's men. They finally reach a hotel where they part ways for now, Bond heading back to England to identify the man who paid Gonzales. After some hemming and hind from Tanner and Gray, Bond heads down to Q Branch to A, annoy Q, and B, take a run at the identigraph to identify the man who paid Gonzales. Turns out floppy disks that provide the identigraph its memory are the size of Michelin tires. The Dr. Octopus-looking mofo that Bond comes up with is Emil Leopold Locke, who strangled his psychiatrist and escaped prison with multiple murder charges already under his belt. It's said that he's recently sighted in Cortina, Italy. Tanner hems and haws, but sends Bond on his way to find Locke. At Cortina, Bond makes contact with the MI6 point man in northern Italy, Luigi Ferrara. Ferrara is a slight non nondescript man who seems seem to blend in well. He introduces Bond to Aristotle Christatos, an influential oil man and former freedom fighter in the Greek resistance. They meet at a bar before an outdoor skating rink, with, whilst Locke watches from a vantage point from above. Crisado has been observing his Olympic skating protégé, Bibi Doll, at the time of, that they arrive, practicing on the ice. But he's more than happy to answer the Bond, you know, Bond's questions about Locke. Crisado is a smooth player, telling Bond that Locke is the right hand of a Greek smuggling boss named Columbo, also known as the Dove. But before you can say, the shill will be down in moments, Lord Vader, you may start your landing, there's something off about Crisado's. Hmm. Before we or Bond can examine this closer, Crisado's seduces Bond to Bibi and her trainer, Jakob Brink. Bibi is coquettish as all get out and Bond is placed in the awkward position of accompanying her to the events later this afternoon. Bond and Crisado part ways. He tells Ferrara to leave him when they reach the Cortina shopping district. Okay, says Luigi like some loyal Pomeranian. But what Luigi Luigi doesn't know is that Bond has spotted Molina shopping for crossbows. Uh Uh-oh, he tries to spy on her but there's some bikers on his ass that he quickly unsaddles and defenestrates. Following this encounter, he tries to send Molina back to Corfu away from this vengeance quest. Molina reluctantly agrees, trusting in Bond. The day of fun continues when he finds B.B. in his bed waiting for him. Mm -hmm. His unvuncular nature pushing some ice cream over questionable relations, (laughs) he manages to get her out of his hotel room so he can escort her to the Olympic events. Poor Bond. His suffering continues as she woos her way down a ski slope with him. Mm. Bond is practically jumping for joy when she reveals a crush on East German champion and SS SS poster boy Eric Kriegler. (laughs) He leaves B.B. miring this specimen of finery and stock, but said specimen is actually stalking Bond. He's Locke's point man, you see. Instead of an ice cream, Bond gets a snow cone of shitstorms as he is pinned down (laughs) in the woods by Kriegler's biathlon (laughs) rifle. Bond manages to get away, but is pursued by it to a ski jump with Locke, Kriegler, and what appears to be a young Tywin Lannister. They follow him onto the ski jump, and despite their best efforts, Bond escapes, leading to a bitching ski chase, cross-country, and down a bobsled run, OHMSS style. Bond is victorious, however, and Kriegler demonstrates he's freakishly strong by throwing a motorcycle at the gradually escaping Bond. Bond trades in his motorcycle assassins for some hockey goons. However, he demonstrates that he is so cool that even a zamboni is badass in his hands.
1: Before the zamboni, love in, he says goodbye to. That scene was so weird. And And why don't they have helmets like they're like uh, like uh, sparks? If you had, uh, (laughs) I don't know if you saw the deleted scene. Oh Uh, yeah, did you see the deleted scene? The deleted scene of that? that.
0: No, I didn't. Well, he
2: dumps the Zamboni oh, snow man. all on top of all the guys after they're done, right? He what? And the
0: best thing is, is that... He, dump, he the dumps guys, the Zamboni snow? Yeah,
2: snow. Yeah, yeah. on top of their bodies, yeah. right? Okay, and they're great. still alive. And then one guy gets out of the snow and takes his helmet off. And that was Charles Dance's character. So that was Charles Dance, like, in that yellow uh, ski suit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yellow ski suit ski suit. Ski suit. Hockey jersey. Hockey, or, yeah, yeah. H- I
0: hadn't ho- seen that. All, all that I can think is, you know, they're obviously pushing Olympic winter sports. maybe, maybe there was like a bet a lot, bet among the crew, how many sports can we get in this film? Let's get hockey in well, some way.
1: John Glenn yeah. said, Oh, you know, we'll use ice hockey, it's a brutal sport. Apparently, yeah. said yeah. we had, we researched it and found out no,
2: that it's a pretty brutal sport.
0: <laughs> it's because well, Yeah, but know. it's nothing like that. Unless they're like the, the Philadelphia Flyers of the seventies. Yeah. 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 What what was the color of the
1: Philadelphia Flyers back then? No, it wasn't those colors. Okay. Oh, they were orange. They had the Canadians. They had the Canadians in another jersey that looked kind of like, kind of like the Leafs, and one that was like yellow and blue, which kind of looked like the Swedish national team.
0: <laughs> it was so very pro- weird. I don't even understand why why that's why that that's in there. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, did yeah, Lock, did no. Locke arrange for that, or did Christodoulou arrange for it, or was is BB Doll's trainer that arranged for that?
1: <laughs> what I don't understand is like they did this whole like it was almost like the they just like skated around together like it was like they had like a practice lap yeah that's right like Like, let's just get ready for this okay (laughs) all right now we're gonna get you like because i guess you know james bond doesn't understand hockey and he's like why do all these guys why are they skating around like it's it it was like a beehive (laughs) it was just like what are you doing it was uh, i don't know it's funny
2: so Bond returns to the arena parking lot to find Ferrara garretted, a pin with the likeness of a dove clasped in his hand. Uh-oh. Bond returns to Corfu, meeting cute with Melina and attending a montage of Greek culture and messy fig eating complemented by the great view. He tells Melina that he is going to meet a man, Christatos, who I can't seem to embrace. I wonder what his taste in ancient chalices is like. <laughs> Probably poor. Who can solve all their problems? Yeah. Well, he didn't. After cleaning up the Baccarat table, Bond sits down with Cristatos to talk shop on Colombo. Cristatos points out this dove to this obvious British narcotics board agent. Columbo is sitting at a table nearby with the Austrian Countess Liesel, who seems to be Columbo's partner in crime. Turns out he was listening to their conversation the entire time. He returns from his office in the casino and is soon greeted with some harsh words from Liesel, followed by a splash of wine in his face. Liesel storms off in full view of Bond and Cristatos. Bond takes the bait of this so-called trap. Christatis' words. We discover that this Liesl is the countess of not Austria, but of Liverpool. The expatriate and the patriot knock boots over a roaring fire and porny music, followed by a walk on the beach at dawn. It's like a Lava Life commercial, if Lava Life included dune buggies, that is. Locke with young Tywin as his wingman bugger those dunes like mad, chasing down Bond and Liesl. Locke is revealed to be an even bigger piece of shit when he runs down Liesl. Bond witnesses her brutal death, but young Tywin and Locke have the drop on him. But lucky for Bond, that Charles Dan seems to be a crossbow magnet. A harpoon per- perforates Locke's number two, and Locke drives off, leaving Bond to look around for Peter Dinklage, but he's busy off playing knick-knack in a biopic, so it has to be the black-garbed <laughs> frogmen brandishing harpoons as they come from the surf. A nice squack knocks Bond out. He awakens on Columbo's sailing vessel. He is brought to the Dove stateroom only to learn that Dove is harmless, as it should be. Colombo informs Bond and the audience that Locke works for Christatos. That Christatos is a double agent working for the communists and this, in, in in this case, the Soviets. He attempts to gain Bond's trust by sailing to Albania. Here they encounter Christatos' smuggling warehouse, men to the teeth and a full school of mines and diving and salvage equipment. Bond, Colombo, and Colombo's howling commandos take on Christatos' mercs, and it's a bloody fight. Locke sends this warehouse sky high, taking the smuggled opium with it. He flees in his Mercedes with Bond in pursuit, albeit on foot. Bond is truly the Stairmaster here because he manages to beat Locke's Mercedes to the top of the promontory. Some well-placed bullets through the windshield send Locke's Mercedes leaning over the precipice. Bond returns Locke, the dove pin he left with Ferrara, and with a shout of, This is Sparta. Kidding, but hey, it's Greece or Albania anyway, so it works. Anyway, he coldly kicks a terrorized Locke and his Mercedes off the cliff. Cold, Roger, cold. Yet you did it well. Bon rendezvous with Molina at the underwater temple, leaving Chekhov's oxygen tank on the temple floor. <laughs> they go below decks on the Triana. Bon explains Molina, the whole situation, aboard the Triana. Crisettos is the one behind it all. We must get the ATAC. No prob, says Molina. My dad is a two-person submarine, so let's do this thing. Using maps and compasses and all that cartographic stuff, they determine where the St. George's should be and head out in the Neptune. That's the name of the sub, by the way. Locating at St. George's, they suit up in their diving gear and enter the sun controller. Soon they reach the secret control room. The ATAC is still intact, the self-destruct button unable to be activated. It's a good thing that the ATAC comes with a waterproof instruction manual. Mm. After some cutting off green or red wires, the ATAC is separated from the console, but Mantis Suit Man arrives and tries to relieve them of the device. It's a struggle with Molina's oxygen tubes compromised and Bond trapped under a shelf of some kind, but Bond manages to slip away from Mantis Man, leaving him a souvenir of his descent— the ATAC's explosive charge stuck in place where he can't reach it with those pinchers. Cool guys don't look at explosions seem to be working here, even underwater as Molina and Bond return to the te- Neptune with ATAC in hand. Just as they are pulling away, we learn from a cutscene that Cristatos and his men are observing everything that is going on. A Cristatos employee pilots an even smaller personal submarine, brandishing a, uh, a bevy of mechanical hydraulic arms intent on destroying the Neptune and seizing the ATAC. The Neptune has more le- heft, however, and though it takes some electrical damage, it manages to escape the mini-sub. Too bad that Cressatos and Co are waiting for them on the surface. Cressatos greets them all smug and enjoying his own malevolence immediately. So what does a vicious double agent who won the King's Medal do with Bond and Molina? Does he take the attack and shoot them between the eyes? Nope. He decides to keelhaul them because evil. Well, it's pretty amazing and visually believable that Bond and Molina survived this ordeal, but suffice it to say, Cressados is the one Bond villain who is not stupid for thinking Bond is dead after leaving him in a trap of which no escape could be conceived. Running out of air, Bond and Molina reach the temple floor, and lo and behold, Chekhov's oxygen tank is waiting for them, unironically. They return to the ship, defeated sure that the attack is lost, but Max the Parrot saves the day and brings the plot together with one line, Ataq at St. Cyril's. Yes, the parrot let MI6 learn where the MacGuffin could be located. Into the Greek highlands, Bond goes, meeting Hugh in a confessional and determining that St. Cyril's is a monastery atop a high mesa. Bond gathers Molina and Colombo, brings his top partners in crime with him as well. Bond gets to the heavy lifting here, climbing the precipice himself to gain access to the monastery's winch system so he may lower the basket down for his verifiable Trojan horse. Easier said than done, of course, with some sweaty palms and vertigo, we and Bond get to the top of the mesa. With Stealth Molina, Columbo, and his men penetrate the monastery. Meanwhile, Bibi is rebelling from Uncle Ari. Kriegler is heading around like a robot. The other guards are slacking off, and the rest are sleeping. And Golgo is on his way via helicopter. You could, cut, you could cut the tension with a knife, and so it goes. As Bond meets Kriegler head on after subduing the guards, Crisados is all dum de dum in the background, nonchalantly making his way to the exit with ATAC in hand. In addition to being a pure specimen of the ideals of National Socialism, Kriegler turns out to be incredibly stupid and chooses to be distracted by Crisados' comings and goings. Ultimately, this leads to his defenestration – I love that word – and death by falling a very long distance. Not a single Wilhelm scream, though. He was really stoic, our Kriegler. Bond is still dazed by Kriegler's pummeling, but decides to pursue Crisados and the attack. But colombo has got this. He lunges primarily at the man who portrayed his countrymen, killed countless others for survival, and yes, ordered the death of poor Liesel. It's a scrappy brawl between the two enemies, but egged on by the sound of Gogol's chopper thrum, Cristados manages to send Columbo rolling down the stairs. Columbo stumbles on the plateau, exhausted and now in sights Molina's crossbow, but Bond turns out to be a bit of a hypocrite and warns her about two graves or some contrived BS. And while they all but bicker, Columbo takes control of the situation with the well-placed <laughs> knife in Cristados's back. At this moment, Gogol is stepping out of the chopper. Awkward, yes, but with a well-placed spiral off the promontory, the ATAC smashes to bits on the rocks hundreds of feet below. Awkward, yes, but that's detente. Go will be like, that's cool, fam. Catch you on the flip side in this morally ambiguous game that we all seem to be playing. I feel you, says Bond, walking away, not adding that. Boy, we are kind of pieces of shit that aren't we agreeing to disagree after all this death and for what? A business calculator? But that's showbiz, (laughs) folks. Columbo is a candidate for BB sponsorship. Not sure about the wink, though. Melina decides to award her father surrogate in this adventure with some sex. And Margaret Thatcher gets lampooned. All in a day's work, my friends. Sing it, Sheena. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lampooning here at the end of this. This this man. thing, Thatchers, man, the it's Thatchers' weird.
1: husband thing was ridiculous. <laughs> like <laughs> oh I asked my-
0: Sarah, I asked her obviously as a as a Scottish you know, native, yeah. like watching this, I'm like, you know, where were they at the time in terms of being lampooned? Like Spitting Image wasn't yet a thing. You remember that show, Spitting Image, that British uh, satire show where they're all using puppets and stuff. I didn't think Spitting oh. Image was was on yet, but that's a re- that was a really popular show. But Sarah said that. Um, Thatcher and her husband, particularly her husband, have always had that sort of bumbling public uh, image, you know. And and particularly the husband was because uh, you see him, he just kind of gets his hand slapped for reaching over and yeah. touching the food, <laughs> like. And he has such a dumb look in his face. <laughs> he's, he's, like, he's like the dad of Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, he kind of is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he has no clue that like the the the, the new yeah. hot. <sighs> high school boy in town is making the moves on his wife you know <laughs> yeah anyway it's it's a strange one yeah and a, a, we, a weird way to end too like i, I really don't like the ending of this stuff but no, i
1: don't i don't like it either
0: actually. it's uh anyway that's good good work josh you know i was just listening to your your plot summary there um enjoying it as always it, you've drawn my attention to just how many check guns there are in the bond series because i don't think we've had a plot summary yet where there's not some instrument that that comes later you know introduced to come later to save them right
2: yeah. yeah. Well, that's my I think my bachelor's in you know in film and English just you know kind of going to fore and noticing those things
0: right away. You know what I mean? I like it though. It's 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 funny because obviously these films are formulaic and depend on that type of stuff to get Bond out of these ridiculous situations. But it's not until you know listening to these these plot summaries. Oh, there's this, that, and some films have two or three of them. But the yeah, the oxygen tank. Yeah, check off check
1: offs oxygen tank. <laughs> anyway. One thing I I didn't want to. I didn't want to interrupt Josh, but at the beginning, when he was talking about like the, you know, the helicopter scene mm-hmm. and all that, that was such a Grand Theft Auto mission. It's insane. Yeah, I can. I can I, see that too. I, the whole I've thing. i helicopter from pick up to draw. GTA Five. Oh yeah, man! Like it's right on. I was like, wow, how much? How much? Uh, how much money did they make on? The, oh wait, sorry. Now I'm watching <laughs> James Bond. I was looking for the money counter in the top left hand corner. See how much you're pulling in. <laughs> I was waiting to see, like, Wasted come up when, like, Blofeld, (laughs) quote-unquote Blofeld, fell into the chimney. Yeah. Oh, man.
0: Well, look, uh, let's get on to some context, Jeff. Talk to us, please, about this Greek Civil War and how it fits in and connects loosely, albeit, but loosely to the film.
1: Yeah, so my ears kind of uh, pricked up when they were mentioning, you know, they mentioned a few times about, you know, the Greek resistance and they fought together with the communists and the Greek. And I, I'll be honest, I really don't know much about this Greek civil war. I know a little bit more about the famous one back in the day, <laughs> way back in the day. Peloponnesian um, uh, so War. That would be the one. <laughs> um, a little farther back.
3: Uh, a little so back.
1: the interesting here's the interesting thing when I looked it up. So I know a little bit about the Greek resistance because, uh, you know, I read a book about an SOE agent who uh, uh, fought on Crete, and that was pretty interesting. They actually came up with an idea to um, kidnap a, a German general who was on the island. And so that was the whole point of that was to sort of like emasculate the Germans and sort of uh, win back the hope of the people there. Be like, hey, look, we can kidnap a, a German general. Uh, you know, what are you guys going to do about it? But that actually didn't work out too well. I think that the name of the book that the guy, so the SOE guy wrote a book. It was called mm-hmm. Ill Met by Moonlight." Ill-met the uh, moonlight. So yeah. yeah, it wasn't. It was actually pretty brutal, just showing. It's interesting because you think, oh, you know, it's all tropical and all that stuff. But the way they had to, like, navigate them, the mountains in, on Crete and around there, holy smokes, it was pretty brutal. Anyways, so the Greek Civil War actually, it was post-World War II, but it actually had started uh, during the Second World War, during the occupation uh, by the Germans. And it all kind of started with when the, the, the Greek— government in exile when the king left and he kind of had an exile government in egypt and then i think he also moved over to england the the factions that were that were sort of coming out of the woodwork that were resistance groups were kind of vying for power there was a power struggle so on top of the fact that they were fighting the germans they were actually fighting each other and some of the groups were like you know what we're going to take down the nazis we're going to take down the germans but at the same time they kind of had Machinations in the back of their head that we're also going to take over the country. We don't want the king anymore. We want to, like, you know. And it was interesting because some of the groups were communists. They had a lot of different political factions. And that's not uncommon with resistance groups. France had that too. The Dutch, Belgians. There's a lot of different political groups with resistance groups in World War II. Um, The interesting thing about this is that um, this was actually considered because. The, the Civil War kind of started in different phases. So it started and just after, like, the, the Germans had invaded um, Greece. But it went all the way up to the end of the war. And, in fact, they consider the Greek Civil War of 46 to 49 as, like, sort of the last phase of it. But they consider that kind of the first kind of proxy war of the Cold War because it was directly related to the Second World War and because there was communist countries involved because – Um, Tito was pro, uh, pro, uh, Greece and the British were, were on the other side. So it was interesting because, so the Greece was funded by the UK and the US. The insurgents were backed by Stalin and Tito. And it was interesting that Tito and Stalin actually were at odds. Stalin wanted to stop and Tito wanted to keep going. Why? Why did Stalin want to stop? Where, he I just mean, how, how did he he's see like, the? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, okay. As far as I read, it, it, it just mentioned that like, he's like, you know what? I don't care anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, he's watching resources drained, probably that could be spent and, elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, exactly. But Tito was kind of. I mean, Tito was. I always say that Tito was probably the best example of how a communist government works, because I mean, I always say that you know I like the quote saying like you know communism works great on paper, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at the for resistance groups. Um, because obviously Tito was in charge of uh, – he became obviously the leader uh, in the Yugoslavia post-war and through the Cold War. I mean he did a lot of bad things. But if you notice on how he ran the the Yugoslav resistance in World War II, he was fantastic in that sense. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's a good person. But the way he ran his, his networks and all that all throughout Yugoslavia and um, the little countries within the Balkans was – Masterful, kind of like the Che Guevara effect. Yeah, he where, it was where amazing. They were brilliant people, yeah. but also assholes. Exactly. So, anyways, the interesting thing I just thought I wanted to look that up, and just it was some interesting things that the how I didn't actually realize how tumultuous Greece was after the after the Second World War. So that's sort of just me. I didn't I didn't realize that, but. Um, it's interesting how you know communism obviously like kind of bled through Europe and the Balkans as well, and obviously the Balkans being a hotbed for everything in the mm-hmm. 20th century and even the uh, 19th century. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so that, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then obviously with Christatos being a, a double agent, he's a real piece of work. I mean, those are the worst people. If, you know, if you, uh, I, I have a feeling though, he was just trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to survive, and he was just trying to see like, well, you know what, I want to live. So I might as well try and put my money on, you know, the fastest horse. I guess maybe he thought it was the Germans, but I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it, Christados?
0: Because he has the makings of a very realistic, and I did make this note, like he seems a very realistic villain, you know, using yeah. the, 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 the sort of the sports patron or the arts patron or the whatever patron to, to mask his, his financing and all of this stuff, But and, and sorry, his criminality. But at the same time, while he is realistic in that real-world villain sense, he lacks the great menace of a Bond villain.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, exactly.
0: I, I just kind of wonder. I mean, how do you read Christados in this context of of kind of uh, where Greece is and and how he is trying to manipulate different
1: environments? Well, that's the thing. It's, he's really hard to read, and that's what. But I, I like him. He's a good character, and he's quite. Um... He's quite, I have to say, he's quite evil, <laughs> and I it is interesting that he kind of uses, um, you know, BB Doll. It's kind of like, I'm a good person, this is my cover, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I, I just feel that, um, well, he's a real, real piece of work. And uh, i, you know, I almost like to see like a biography, I like to see more about him and how he got to where he is into this film, you know, if there was almost like some kind of a prequel, <laughs> a prequel to <laughs> well, Let me in ask Columbus. you then. Just, just
0: as, a, as a closing point to your talk here on, on sure, the course. Greek Civil War, like after the war, Greece became, um, and I mean, still remains, but certainly after the war, it became quite a haven for celebrities. A lot of properties purchased and uh, a lot of time spent over there. I'm thinking of people like Leonard Cohen, Richard Burton, you know, they, they had and frequented that place quite regularly with real estate and parties and, and whatnot, but... Was it in those early days of the post-war fifties and sixties, perhaps? I mean, was it safe in that sense no. to just kind of go well, and, and rock up and travel and spend their money and, and go get out again
1: quite absently and ignorantly? I think maybe in some areas, right. but it it seemed that um, it it was. Uh, it, from in the fifties, it was actually still pretty tumultuous. There was still, you know, factions and and, and violence. Uh, Greece had a lot. I didn't realize that when I read it, just how it it took a while. Like it was like if you think about it, if Greece was a campfire, uh, you know, there were still some burning embers well mm. into the sixties. And the other thing was is that again, with the whole proxy war, the Cold War, it's because it was communist. Uh, you know, factions, and obviously, uh, you know, with Russia and, and Yugoslavia in there, America kind of had their people in there, and they had the CIA, and they were kind of doing stuff. It's kind of like, um, you know, there it was uh, with Vietnam, and there was a lot of sort of communism, fighting communism in different areas, and so the America had had agents in there too so i would say it wasn't safe actually and i to be honest i i just found that out but i didn't realize how it really wasn't that safe but i guess in in certain areas i mean look if you're on a remote beach that's like you know 300 feet wide sure, white yeah. sand, mm-hmm. probably okay yeah well what did you say the name of that book was
0: again because that's this is good stuff it,
1: yeah, Ilmet by Moonlight. Let me double check that. But it was a great read. I read it actually. I was on vacation uh, in Virginia Beach. And so it was it was good cuz I was on the beach reading it. And man, yeah. it was super super interesting. And, you know, it's funny, too, just listening to you talk and thinking about it
0: geographically, because Greece is such a geographical sprawl. You have, obviously, the mainland areas, but then you've got the the neighboring uh, countries and, of course, all the islands. And so it probably would have been quite a diaspora in sense of, you know, where the conflict was spread out and,
1: and concentrated, you know? Yeah, yeah. I found the name of the general, by the way. Okay, great. It was General. Uh, I think it was Kripe. not Creep. Mm-hmm. I don't. But apparently, he was a nice. It was kind of one of those like Rommel guys. Like they actually they had him captured and they they actually took care of him. They actually had like a They actually had like a, um, sort of a, a relationship because um, th- they actually did capture him and, and uh, he was injured. But they actually cared for him, and so the people they actually had cared for him and the SOE agents and the resistance guys. You know, they. It was more like they were doing a job. As if I, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. they. It wasn't just like originally they were going there. Let's kill this guy. Let's do this. And then you know they grabbed him and they're like, you know, he's, he's not that bad of a guy. He had, he had It was almost like turning into like Stockholm syndrome almost with the German. Yeah, okay, and, and, yeah, I'm with you. So. But it, um, it was it was interesting
0: well to hear you talk about Greece as like if it if it were metaphorically the bonfire there's still these embers you know burning into the 60s and 70s it'd be interesting you know to think about the film 80s a decade on from kind of the time that you're you're still yes. commenting on if uh, yeah. anybody from that area or with a great knowledge of this conflict um, that, that Jeff's kind of contextualizing for us. Anybody spot anything in the film? You know, you, you see anything that you think still kind of shows some of these embers glowing, either in the character or behavior of Christados or his goons? And you know, give it, That's give us
1: sense. a, give us a message and uh, so share your info with us. Yeah, we love, we love for you to share the info that you yeah, can. You can hit us up on uh, on our, our Facebook page, Bond by Numbers, and uh, and on our, and on our Twitter. Hmm.
0: All right, well, good work there, buddy. That was uh, good to listen to, and it's always great when we get some military and historical context brought into these films because they certainly skirt over it pretty heavily and pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's okay
3: though. Cool. <laughs>
0: right gents let's talk then this film let's get down to our money penny scoring and uh start thrashing this out a bit sounds good sounds good so why don't we start then jeff with you give us some thoughts on how you like this film and the acting the story like what are you thinking
1: i i thought this was a really really solid film actually um i, I like it because it was actually pretty quote-unquote serious for uh, a more film um i really enjoyed it um It really kind of brought you in. I guess that's more the atmosphere, but it really – it makes you – all the different locations, it really gave you time to really look around and enjoy and sort of be there. Like I guess it makes you feel like a tourist. Uh, So I really enjoyed that, which made me actually um, score the atmosphere fairly high. I'll get to that in a second. The story I did enjoy – uh, I, I, there was a lot of different aspects to it. It was uh, there's lots of different characters. It kept you engaged. Uh, so I felt that it was actually a very very decent story. Um, the acting, as Josh and I were saying together for a, a moor bond, it was pretty good mm-hmm. film. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I'll, I'll start. So with my with my money penny, I gave it seven acting because I thought it was pretty acting. good. Okay. Yeah, I gave it, it. It's all pretty solid. There wasn't. It wasn't. There was really no comical. Moments uh, per se as much as some of the other more ones that we've seen so far Uh, the story I gave it 8.5 between 8.5 I'm going to say 8.5 money pennies for the story Uh, like I said I really enjoyed it Uh, lots of different characters um, and it it kept you engaged and involved Um, and obviously the atmosphere I I actually give it uh, I I could go 9.5 I'm going to go 9 I I was in between yeah because I just thought they had everything. They had snow. They had sand, um, and and all the different locations. It just it really brought you in. You know, looking at that 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 crazy monastery on a rock, the locations yeah, that were was just
3: great. Yeah.
1: amazing. You know, and it's just it's it was a really and it had you know the underwater uh, fights and explosions and all that kind of stuff. And and also just how they they had they made. I don't know if you heard how they made the um, the tile under underwater. Remember that, Josh? Oh yeah, yeah so I mention Josh was saying oh, they, know, they they did okay. Xerox. Yeah, laminate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, so, anyways, they they really made the atmosphere. Uh, I, I feel like the, the the film's atmosphere was quite quite good. So I'm going to give it a nine. So my scores are acting seven, story eight point five, and atmosphere nine for me.
0: Well, let me pick up on something you said, uh, Jeff, with the story. And Josh, I don't know, you want to chip in here? That's cool. Let's just talk about this, guys. When we looked at the Man with the Golden Gun last time, we were commenting on how it was really a story of two stories. And we were interested in following the Bond versus Scaramanga stuff, but not so interested in the let's just chase this device for solar power stuff, right? And and the two of them come together quite clumsily. But in this story, we do sort of have a division going on as well. You know, we've got the whole Melina motivating incident, getting the narrative moving for the revenge, and then the attack. Right? I mean, uh, had is there a parallel there? Do you see these more structured films going in the same way? I think the revenge quest for Melina works well with
2: the attack quest. I, I think yeah. it, it blends okay. in a lot better than the amount of the Golden Gun. And right? actually,
1: the, again, and I yes. agree with you
2: though that the the Melina um, revenge quest is kind of uh, snuffed out though by by the end of the film. Okay,
1: well... See- I, I, I did put in the Molina part. I, that was, To be on as much as it got snuffed out, that was actually one of the reasons I did actually rate it as high as it was, is that I did appreciate Molina and the revenge, and I, I thought it was it was understandable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually also her acting, I thought was pretty good. That's also why I, I put my acting at seven <laughs> for what well, it was. Let me ask you then
0: with respect mm-hmm. to the story at the end of the film, during that lampooning scene with the Thatchers, Margaret Thatcher, oh, yeah. Ma- Margaret Thatcher says, come you the know, ball. Your mission was a success, <laughs> right? That type of stuff. Like, how was yeah. it? Like, what, what, what was his mission? And how does she know whether it was a success or not? Like, was his mission to to just destroy the ATAC or to make sure it doesn't get into
1: the Russians' hands? Like, well, what was the mission? Because yeah. he didn't really succeed, did he? No, Well, okay, that's the thing. It's like, it's either if you can, you know, if you can extract the intelligence or the right. intel or the device, great. But okay. usually, you know, plan B is destroy it, right? It's like if you can land the uh the experimental jet great uh Hmm. but if you if you're gonna if you're going down or something and you crash landed you're gonna blow it up so no one else get your hands on it so it's kind of like yeah i can see where you're coming with that but
0: (laughs) i just i just didn't get it like bb gets a new sponsor is that what thatcher was wanting to happen in this story like i i I, I don't (laughs) know (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Anyway, I just no, found what? that was kind of weird. like maybe, And it just kind of made me think, maybe I missed something. Like, what was the purpose of the film? And I, I could only presume... And this does, this goes back to the St. George's sinking, too. It didn't quite make sense to me. And, you know, maybe I'm just calling myself out here as a, as a moron for not getting it. But was that a deliberate sinking?
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, it was. I, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, now, you could argue that Gogol. Josh has a good point here.
0: Yeah, like
2: you could argue that Golgol... Um, was not aware of the situation, that, you know, we're going to take advantage of this and get our best man in Greece on it. Sure. But at the same time, he's also, like, looking at his secretary and smiling while he's talking to this guy on the phone. So we don't actually know if Gogol gave Christatos a go-ahead for Locke to put that mine up again to St. George's and sink it off the coast of Albania, yeah. where his warehouse is, lo- is conveniently located. So Gogol could have been on the whole time, or Christatos knew about it, knew that he could profit from it, so right. he sunk okay. this okay. To St. George's, knowing that Gogol would ask him to do it. So I kind of think that that was the inciting Mm. incident. All right.
0: Well, I can see that now. And I did see the Gogol thing at the beginning, the way he looked at at the girl, and and all of that sort of hinting, winking at the camera. I got that side of things, which is why I was suspicious of it. But if this was the case, if both the British knew the course of the ship, and if it was indeed a sinking, and the mine wouldn't have drifted that far, then surely they should have been able to locate it a hell of a lot easier. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, the thing is, I think Havelock did find it because because remember they are pointing out um, in 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 his stateroom when they had, when they had all the maps out that they saw the diving bells right for oil expir- exploration. So that right. was Christados, because mm-hmm. Christados knew where it was, and Havelock was going to report that he saw the diving bells there belonging to Christados okay. near the wreck of the right.
3: ship. Yeah.
0: But you you and picked and up that, on you know, that stuff. I I didn't get that as much. The subtleties were a little bit lost on me. I have to admit. I mean, I was I was in the I was in the ballpark, but I was not on the line. Uh, I see. I see. I
2: I can see where your confusion is, though, in terms of thematically, like where this what the story is about. Yeah, yeah. Like I I would say that it's. I would say they're trying to make a spy story, and they have like a a Hitchcockian MacGuffin, which is the the Mm. ATech. And and what happened though is that it also introduces us with to I guess to like this colorful underworld of Greek smuggling, right? Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's colorful and and wet works and all this sort of stuff that kind of blend together in in a I, I think in a pretty a good way, not seamless, of course,
0: but in a good way. So with Blofeld's character, sorry, I'm going back to the beginning here as well, because this is Mm -hmm. another structural point that, you know, the film's trying to close a chapter of something that happened before, whether it's because of the McClory lawsuits and the conflict going on there, whether it's because John Glenn and the producer wanting now to fix something with Diamonds Are Forever that we didn't get. This film does completely ignore in its pre-title sequence the diamonds are forever, Blowfeld, and the fact that he would have died during that ridiculous sort of comical explosion on the the oil rig, right? Yeah, and, when, if, and, when, it, and he killed him.
2: Stuff, yeah, like because he was like he was like being used as like a wrecking ball with the bathosub sub like on the crane on the oil rig, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, So and okay. like, he keeps, throws him right into like the control center, and everything explodes.
0: So maybe that's, that's how uh,
2: he. That's yeah. why he's in a wheelchair.
0: <laughs> oh, maybe, 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 maybe that's why he's in a wheelchair. Actually, Josh, you're doing a good job of trying to stitch it together. Which is probably what and the explosion yeah. seared off his hair again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. I think right. he just okay. had um, maybe fibromyalgia and stress, and that's why he has no hair. And- yeah. <laughs> Going back
2: to Star Wars, fun fact: the guy that played Blofeld in that sequence, John Hollis, he's like a he became a pretty uh, like a, I guess a well-known British character actor, like in television. Mm. Uh, he played Lobot, Lando Calrissian's <laughs> head of security <laughs> in *The
0: Empire Strikes Back*. God, I'd leave it to you to pull it. Robot. <laughs> right okay well it's a film of different parts it works well for me i i liked it even though i've already called out my problem with how melina's character has dropped right off uh and she yes. kind of yep. becomes she just becomes a second fiddle uh soft yep. player to bond's mission when hers really is the more interesting one i i'm interested in looking at i like them coming yeah. together on a similar plane you know looking for the same guy for different reasons but i don't like the the way that she just you know becomes a a, a subplot i guess
3: Lynn, yeah, Holley, Lynn sub Holly Johnson.
0: Plot. A subplot. Sub yeah, I did well there, didn't I, Jeff? See, you're wearing off on me, man. Just It's like osmosis. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, I thought Lynn Holly Johnson was terrible. Nothing short she was. of terrible. Um, she, was. she is dumb in this film. Uh, the fact, like, and, and the way they write her, too, like... Yeah, I was, she, The writing was really bad for her. She just meets Bond, and then she moans when he leaves. Like, what the fuck is with that? Like, she hardly knows him. Why would she care? Oh, you're going already? Oh, but I had to... Like, what? Why do you care? I, uh, I was just cringing at the very
2: beginning. Like, her first line, I think, in the movie is, like, I'm pooped. You know? Like, that just automatically just, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just brings the character down, you know, just
1: something like. And then could you just picture Bond being like, you had me and pooped.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's go, kid. Um, (laughs) uh, Bonds. I I just got a couple of notes here with respect to acting. Like some of the stuff is is okay. Cristados is really good. I do like him. Like as we said about his character, there's a believability there in the real world. But at the same time, that makes him kind of a weak a weak Bond villain because there's not a lot of menace there. He's more like a venture capitalist, you know? Yeah, I was was, was making a comparison. Killer uh, venture capitalist. Yeah, I, I was giving a comparison
2: to Jeff the other day about how, you know, it's kind of similar to The Living Daylights in that way where you have a string of, like, of oh, kind of, yeah. like, yeah. mid-tier, I guess. Mid-tier, in yeah. terms of, like, mid-tier villains, you know? But I found in this case they worked better than it did in The Living Daylights. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. yeah you're right.
2: What, what, yeah, like, what, I think Glover played um, – Christatos, with some kind of, you know, with, with a kind of a malevolent slickness that worked really well for the film. It didn't give him enough menace, though, because the only menace we really saw from Christatos was basically done to the uh, person of Locke. You know what I mean? And, and Locke was creepy, but he never really had any lines, though. You know what I mean? True, true. And, and Kriegler was what was a trope. So. Oh, yeah. Even by this point, he's a trope. Yeah, I kind of wish they didn't have Krieger. I wish there was more there were they had more of an emphasis on Locke. I think that would have been more
0: interesting.
1: Yeah, I agree. I was I was thinking that too actually. Uh,
0: what did you make of Roger Moore's acting? Like like I know obviously Jeff, you gave us your score for acting overall, but if if you could kind of Yeah, I thought I mean, Moore I, was pretty good in this film. Yeah. Bet, better yeah. than <laughs> he was in The Man with the Golden Gun.
1: Yeah, oh,
3: he wasn't. Definitely. There wasn't as many
1: sort of comical, like you know, like puns and stuff like that. He was more down. Like again, he was like down to business. Like it was. I think the tone. Well, I mean, you could argue this, but the tone was kind of set when like it starts off with like the grave, and then I mean, this was, was, wasn't like a super super serious. But I just no, mean for Roger Moore, and the way he portrayed Bond in this film, he was definitely sort of more business Bond, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I enjoyed that. I did enjoy that. I like seeing you know. I like seeing uh, Roger Moore portray him kind of sometimes more serious.
3: Well, You're I, I agree. Yeah.
1: Up until the ending of
2: like the movie, I never really thought that Bond, Roger Moore's Bond was romancing in any way Melina Havelock no, whatsoever. Not it's not really. only until like the end of the, of the yeah. movie where she's like, you know what? Let's, let's do it. Let's do this. And he's yeah. like, okay, whatever. But at the same time, like it, it seems like he was more like an avuncular figure to her throughout the movie. And I think Moore played it that way.
1: Yeah, I think he played a cool, calm, collected, you know, but yeah, I, I didn't see overall, over, over, overtly like, hey, let's bang. And, you know, and they
2: had like that whole comic sequence, you know, with Lynn Holly Johnson. I mean, that was funny to watch, but did the movie really need that? You know yeah. what I mean?
0: I think that, that was also did. there to establish a, a contrast between good guy, not a sex pest bond and potential pedophile, this other guy, you know, Chris Dottos.
2: Yeah, I never really found Crusado's like that I think he actually saw BB as a, just a cover for him Well so to show, do like, I how brave, how So do I I never really got the sense that he was a, a uh, you know that he was a freak you know what I mean like but I, I you, never got that.
0: I tell you man if you listen to our grandmother as we will in a few minutes she argues that he is after her booty the whole time Interesting, Interesting. That's how she reads it <laughs> Okay <laughs> So I don't know. But uh, hey, listen, I, I want your opinion, Jeff. I know you, you got to go shortly. I just want your opinion sure. on, a, on a couple other things here. Sure. You see, you're talking about we're talking about Moore's acting and kind of where it's serious. And, and there is there are some rather there are some light touches in this film. Yes. Like he does give a couple of one liners during the car chase. The, with yeah, the Citroen 2CV. I, I thought those were really well placed. They didn't feel clunky to me. That's I thought great. they worked, and I thought one of the reasons they worked is because he's playing them off an actress who is smiling at the time. Like, she's laughing where she needs to laugh, and it yes. kind of fe- yes. it feels very natural to me, this stuff.
1: It, it, it does. Yeah, I totally agree, because I, I like that line about, like, lovely uh, lovely drive.
3: In the country, yeah. yeah. drive in also the country. The yeah.
1: And To be honest, I did enjoy when he's like, he didn't have a head for heights. I enjoyed that.
3: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> I mean, it was bad. It was bad, but I didn't mind it. I came up with a really bad pun. I was thinking, like, you know, when life gives you um, Citroëns, um, make, make a getaway?
3: I don't know.
0: <laughs> Keep working on that one. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. yeah that, that one needs a bit of, a, a bit of, a, of adjustment there. Yeah, yeah. Here's um, a fun fact God. for you. The Citroën 2CV is the very first vehicle, the very first cheap vehicle to use front-wheel drive. Did you know that?
1: Oh no, I didn't know
0: that. Yeah, making the car easier to handle and safer than its contemporaries. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, it. Uh, I read up a lot on the cars in this story, actually, because of, as you guys know now, I, <laughs> I'm the proud owner yeah. of a great James Bond diecast car collection, and I realized, I realized as I was opening these boxes and watching my wife's face, where the fuck are you gonna put these things? Like, great, right? <laughs> uh, I realized what I wanted wasn't actually the cars at all, but just the magazines that came with them to give me all the information. That's honestly true. Like since I've had all these things out, I've been reading the books. Like this is really cool. Like reading about all these cars and the turbocharged uh, Lotus Esprit Sport and all this stuff. And then I'm like looking at all these cars. I got stacked on the shelf as if to say, yeah, there's those things too. But I really just wanted the books. It turns out.
3: <laughs>
0: there you go.
2: Anyway. so
1: you're like you're like the kid who gets like the $400 Playmobil set but she plays with the box that's yeah. right yeah I'm, I'm so very much that ever, guy yeah.
0: I'm afraid <laughs> 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 nice, nice anyway so we'll see no, how long we'll- those cars stay on the shelf
2: Another good Moore sequence too, where his comedy was well done but not overstated, was the scene with Q. I I actually love Roger Moore's scenes with Desmond Llewellyn, So like, and like they have such a good chemistry together. Oh yeah, I was going to mention that. And again, this is another movie like *Man of the Golden Gun*, where Q is out in the field working,
1: and it's mm -hmm. great. Yeah, this is is because you know how usually they kind of have that like. A, not a, I don't want to say a strained relationship, but obviously, like, you know, like, Q, like, chastises me like, saying, okay, okay, whatever. Yeah. But they actually work together. Like, the whole scene with the... um identity, It's cool, yeah. It was great. You know, like, they actually were, like, feeding off each other. Like, he was they asking were. for information. He told it. And, and they're so working you working late, you know, because the girl so,
2: brought in tea and they told her to yeah. lock up and, and stuff
1: like that. And I really appreciated that because they kind of just put... Because, I mean, obviously... Everyone who watches Bond, you've watched the ones previous. Usually, people don't just watch one, so everyone knows that they have a they kind of have that that ongoing relationship. And it's neat that they kind of just like went got down to business, and they were just like kind of working there for a bit. It was mm. nice to see that. I, I really
0: feel bad it. for that girl though, because yes. at the beginning of that scene, she's doing like some pretty serious laboratory work. And, yeah. and then she yes. gives them tea, or and then or she's obviously just hanging around catering for them. Like, that's yeah. kind of, but you know what? That's like a microcosm of what they do with Melina's character, isn't it? Just in one little it, scene. But
1: here's yeah, the it thing it really is I did,
0: it's almost like the devil
2: wears Prada, but in the, at MI6.
1: The one thing I noticed <laughs> and I didn't like is that they gave her Farrah faucet wings, and I'm like, honestly, I just don't picture scientists like, or, you know, whatever. Like, shoulder just, pads. Just, well, yeah, I mean, like, I understand that, but. Are you really going to put, like, the wings in your hair uh, and then put on your white lab coat? Like, do you really care who sees <laughs> you with your fair wings? I know. When you're, you know, you're, I don't know, that's what. I'd like to point out, too, is you
2: see uh, Q's usual assistant, Smithers, there with, like, and he had, like, that cast device, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, another Star Wars connection, too. Uh, the actor that plays Smithers in the Bond films, uh, he who's in a couple of them, actually, uh, that is Jeremy Bullock, who played Boba Fett. There you go. Oh, the man behind the mask. The man behind yeah. the mask, indeed. He was also the star of those like Carry On films, like oh, really? In the seventies, oh, he was on the okay. you, you know, like like those British kind of lewd kind of kind of uh, yeah. comedies, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like Late at Night, Carry On up yeah. the Khyber. Yeah, he was like this, the star of those of those oh, of okay. those movies.
0: Well, uh, something else I made a note of, guys. In terms of atmosphere, you know that attaché case that Locke pays Gonzalez with that big black yes. attaché case. I've got the exact case. And the reason I've got it is because my dad had a Samsonite attache case, which he used to take back and forth to work. And then I think it, towards the end of his life, it was just kept in his cupboard with all of his like life documents. Uh-huh. Um, but um, I've got that now. I use it as my briefcase to school. And I was watching the film and I'm like, what the hell? And so I paused it. <laughs> I paused it to look at the case and I'm like, Sir, look at that. And then, of course, I had the case right down. It's right there in my room right now. I'm looking at it. I'm like this is the exact same one that I've got. So it's not an expensive thing, but it's neat to have a prop. That's not a prop. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Well, I was just don't say, get
2: an octagonal glasses. That's all I have well, to say. I was gonna say,
1: <laughs> can you put can you put all your cars in that, and then just like have that as like display, like
0: oh them, yeah, like make like
2: the mm-hmm. open up the
1: briefcase
0: like a display case. I, I could put <laughs> I could put the cars from this film in there, but those there cars know. the cars are quite big, so.
1: Oh. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. okay, okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Even I couldn't do it.
2: <laughs> that's pretty neat.
0: <laughs> but you know, speaking of the cars, and just coming back to underline my my point on it, this car chase in Greece is one of my favorite car chases. Oh, yeah. I know I know that the cars are not big and great and incredible, but I think that's one of the reasons why the, exactly. the chase works because they don't need you know Aston Martins flying down the road at like a hundred miles an hour. You can just have well, something like this in an environment that works with shots that are neatly well, edited, exactly. and it really
1: works. Yes. Well that's Absolutely. the thing cuz even if you had like the the most expensive car of the time you're not you're going to have to go 30 around a corner. That's <laughs> right. Because yeah. you can't make yeah. there's no point, right? Yeah. So it's good that they actually made a point to actually look, let's use her car mm-hmm. cuz it's mm-hmm. going to be a car that would be used around there and that makes sense. So why not?
2: I like how I like how 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 Molina is like Almost like a backstreet, not a, a backstreet. Oh my God, Backstreet Boys. Right. <laughs> a backseat driver, in a way. Um, well, she's not actually. And um, how she directs Bond, you know, to, yeah, to go go, back. go backwards, forwards, really, mm-hmm. really quick, quickly, right? And Remy Julien did a great job with that whole stunt oh, when, yeah. it, when it comes and when it kind of spins around and then goes the other direction. I'm, I'm that try- was so neat.
1: I'm trying to figure out which way they filmed that first. Did they film him driving backwards? Uh, like, they must have. Uh, had him film going past the. Oh, that's uh, possible. Because you know when you know yeah. they drive yeah. backwards around, I feel like that was actually him driving forward. And they just reverse it. And they reverse it. And then he, yeah. That's probably uh, very but possible. But I don't know. I'm not sure. Was that John Back
0: Glenn's? There. Was that John Glenn's team, uh, or was that Whistler's yes. team? Uh,
2: that was John Glenn's team with Rumi, okay. uh, J- julien like doing all the driving and the stunts there.
0: Yeah, but none um, of that was second unit stuff.
2: No, it wasn't. Okay. John Glenn was actually uh, really into that sequence. Um, one thing I think John Glenn does, and he really brought it out in the later Moore films, is he blends action with comedy very well and not like an over-the-top kind of man with a golden gun kind of way. Okay, right, yeah. You know, like he doesn't have J.W. Pepper in the front seat to make thank things God. funny. You know what yeah, I mean? Like God he, God finds is right, humor, yeah. he finds humor in the situations that the people, the characters get themselves in during the action sequence, right? And uh, he's, I think he balances it very well.
0: Cool. Well, you know, in terms of my scoring for story, I thought the script does a really good job with the two short stories for its source material and the little bit of Live and Let Die. And a scene from Goldfinger, the novel in here too, I thought Melina goes from excellent to second fiddle as I've already said I don't like the way she's treated helpless kind of waiting for Bond to do his stuff and I understand it's his story but she becomes subservient too readily I felt like particularly you know they tried to justify it with the scene in in Cortina with the sleigh but it's like we've forgotten about how resourceful she is and she really could have been on equal par this could have been like a relationship that went somewhere but it it didn't and that's where I, I gotta agree with the critics like Ebert who were dogging it because it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, she is in advance on Pussy Galore and Agent Triple X, but she's not yet at Michelle's, Michelle Yeoh's level, which is too bad because I like her better than Michelle Yeoh's character. She's still my favorite Bond girl to date, though, and the story did that much well, at least. Uh, I gave the story a 7.5, and in terms of acting... I went seven overall. Uh, I, I went through it mechanically and quite mathematically. Lynn Holly Johnson, I gave a four. She's poor, but everybody else around her was pretty serviceable, at least. Roger Moore was really good. I thought much better than the man with the golden gun. I gave him an eight because he's fun to Great. watch. Uh, Topol was fun as a seven I had for him. 6.5 yep. six for Costados because although he's fun and convincing through real day stuff, he lacks the menace of a real big bad. And I kind of want. More than just an opportunist bad guy. I want someone more interesting. If, if this is where we're going, you know. Uh, his henchmen are okay, but they're not as cool as Knickknack. Sorry, it's just true. Um, <laughs> oh, that's true. Carol sure. Bouquet is really engaging, beautiful, fun to watch. I really like yep. her. Q's yep. extra scenes are great. I thought I agree with you guys on that. Really well performed. Ferrara, I went for a six. Uh, the actor, yeah. John Marinos, he's a bit dull in his role. He's not really convincing enough for me uh, to, yeah. to, to, to expect Bond to care about his death. You know, like, yes. I, I, I didn't get that, really. Uh, like, it's fair that Bond would, would, would exact revenge for this guy's death, but deny Melina hers? That's so yeah. dumb to me. Yeah. But, and also, also,
2: like, I found, like, more impactful in the film, Liesl's death is way more impactful than Ferrara's yeah. death, in my opinion. Yeah, right. and yeah, we only yeah, really know yeah. Liesel for like how many
0: sec, how many more minutes than Ferraro was on screen? Exactly, man. Exactly. So I went, I went seven overall for the acting, uh, atmosphere. I also gave a high mark, not as high as you did, Jeff. I went for an eight. It is fun to watch. The travelogue stuff is really nice. The photography throughout the film is good. There are some really nice moments here. Um, the score, I really like this score. I think it's the best non-Berry score of the entire franchise, and it's even better than some of his. This score gets an absolute ribbing among fans and critics. Not everybody, but some, and I just don't see it, because while it is full of fanfare and Rocky-esque type of stuff, that's in with the time. It's in with the editing, yeah. though, of this film. It works with the editing of the film, and the, mm-hmm. the melodies, the song, For Your Eyes Only, it's beautiful. I, I think it's got yeah. a really nice... It works well with the score. You can strip it down and do different things with it, so it's serviceable, And it's pretty. I I think that For Your Eyes Only is a really good inclusion to the series. It's a good film overall. So my score is uh, 22.5 overall. Jeff, you were 24.5. So there you go. Alright.
1: You know what's funny? I just wanted to say that uh, I've been playing For Your Eyes Only like a lot. I yeah. actually have the single, the 45. Oh dear, nice. Driving my girlfriend. I've been driving my girlfriend nuts because I keep playing it. So now what I do <laughs> just to annoy her is I'll literally text her with emojis, like, and I'm trying like spell out For Your Eyes Only <laughs> in emojis and she just it drives her nuts. Nice one. <laughs> nice.
2: Well, um, I think we're kind of on the same level here in terms of uh, My Money Pennies. So for uh, the acting... Um, I gave it 7.5. I thought Roger Moore was really great in this movie. Uh, I think he really put the effort in in what John Glenn wanted him to do for the role and I think he pulled it off and still managed to be a bit of of his own version of Bond as well. Um, Carol Bouquet was great. She's so captivating on screen and you want more of her and the story definitely does her a disservice in the end, but she did a great job. Um, Julian Glover, I've always I've always liked. So I mean, he was yep. I think he was great as the villain. Um, I kind of wish there was a kind of a bigger villain or a big bad, I, I guess you could say. Uh, a bigger heavy. A bigger heavy in this way, <laughs> you know, someone who's a bit more overly menacing. But I think in terms of the story they were trying to tell, Crusado's works as a villain. Uh, but I, I think Glover might have maybe done it a bit more subtly. Maybe they should have they should have got something more psychological into his character and showing and showing and maybe even building up on things like. Not making him a sex pest, as you say, but maybe making him, like, a sadist or something, you know? Like, mm. make him more interesting, like uh, Ma- like Mickelson's Le-, Le-, Le chief. just like, you know, just kind of bringing up a tad, you know what I mean? Um, uh, Topol was great as Columbo, uh, very serviceable and charming and charismatic. Um, I-, I think he was a little two-dimensional, though, in his way, because to me, he's just, like, a really nice version of, of Karen Bay, of Marc-Ange Draco. Uh, it was kind of that kind of same character. Yeah, he's he's cut of that cloth for sure. He's he's cut of that cloth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Lynn Holly Johnson was, I, I don't know if they wanted to be that way in the role, but I found her very shrill and and annoying. And, uh, I, I beyond being, I, I guess a cover for, um, for, um, Cresato's narratively, I found that her inclusion is just simply to work the twist that Cristados, oh this guy, he's like uh, you know, he's protege is an Olympic champ is going to be an Olympic champion. He's a patron of of sports and everything like that. He has a king's medal. She was part of his cover. And I think her being in the scene being as innocent and sweet that she was or whatever, uh, it just seemed to kind of uh, trying to throw the, the wool over our eyes that Cristados isn't the main bad guy here, right? because um, as soon as you get the twist that he's evil it's in that sequences soon following at St. Cyril's where uh, Bibi and Jacoba just are going to abandon him completely as almost as they know that he is actually bad as we know now that he is through our own perspective so um, I-, I just think like that was her whole purpose, she's a plot device and I just don't think she was necessary inclusion in there um, I think it might even be a better scene if Crusado had like killed her or something like that, just to show some menace. You, I know that sounds kind of terrible, but I I, I don't know. Like, I don't wish that they killed the character. Obviously, yeah. well, I don't know. Maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't really say. Um, <clears throat> she choked on an ice cream. So yeah, I'm not going to give it an eight, eight. Eight points. I just don't think it reached that point. So seven and a half, I think, is a good okay. rating for Jackson. Um, I found the story really strong. I gave it an eight. Eight money pennies. In this screen in this way um, even though there was a MacGuffin I think like the whole Greek underworld and the the, the espionage part, part of it and how the story flowed together um, it, I think it ate as really well I want to give it even higher actually but I think the the, the, the opening and the closing sequences really kind of hurt the story in terms of taking it seriously and maybe that goes into the atmosphere a little bit but I think it but it also it definitely in the in the last part of the movie i think it weakens um molina's arc and bond's arc too in a way as well like they just kind of have like well i guess there are a couple or in this case i guess we better you know do that typical ending of bond you know embarrassing his superiors by having sex with the woman on camera right like that's a typical roger moore trope right <laughs>
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: yeah and then also have an attack at the I guess some kind of political attack, uh, passive aggressive at Margaret Thatcher there. I, I don't know what they were trying to do in that sequence personally. Maybe they're upset about the tax shelter laws. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> so I gave, uh, you know, the story eight. Um, I think like it was very well directed by John Glenn, the car chases and sequences, the ski chases, and everyone worked together in tent, like so well to make those sequences pull off. I think John Glenn has a great, uh, i first knack for suspense very hitchcockian in that way just the climbing of the of you know to the top of the monastery was just so bone chilling and well done uh, i will question though that why both guards did not go tell cristados that someone was climbing up the mountainside and they just took care of it themselves i do question that logic but i guess that's something they couldn't work around and you know so i, I think a story out of, out of eight over, overall is is good for free eyes only um, a much stronger mark I gave, I guess eight and a half was to the atmosphere of the film. There's a feeling of like urgency and menace, and also you're kind of bathed in, in the, you kind of bathe into the world of the movie of, of like of uh, Corfu, of Cortina, of the you know the, the mountaintop climb. Like you're just kind of like involved in everything that's going on, the underwater sequences. Everything seems to connect well. Um, the humor is good and done in a, in a, in a way that doesn't detract from the movie. In most cases um, the villains have a, re- a realistic and grounded in most cases. It, it just seems like the, and the music, you know, uh, I would say, I would say is probably it's a little jar- jarring in comparing to other bond scores, but I think it really fit the movie and the time that it was made. Um, so uh, I give the atmosphere um, 8.5 out, out of 10 money pennies.
0: All right, and that brings you to 24 out of 30 money pennies. Uh, I was at 22.5, and Jeff is at 24.5. So in the same ballpark, we all, we all like this one.
2: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: This is it, the interview with Granio. She's a big Bond fan, the reason we got into this series to begin with. Let's see what she thought. Hello. Hello, double O G O.
4: Double O G O.
0: Yeah. So, for your eyes only. What did you think?
4: Oh, I I remember it now. That I, I enjoyed that one.
0: What Don't you, you? Yeah. Well. I
4: like like the story anyway.
0: Yeah, you enjoyed the story.
4: When you think about it, they're mostly the same, aren't they?
0: Spy <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a great diversity within the James Bond world, really. Particularly. Yeah, at that time, the 80s, a lot of the same story ideas were repeated. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You're on a different twist. That's right, yeah, different costume.
4: Yeah. <laughs> One was down in the Greek island, and the other ones were well, anywhere, I guess.
0: Yeah, somewhere else, I suppose.
4: But, it, but I liked like the scenery, and yeah. I certainly like the opening scene.
3: Yeah,
0: the opening scene was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm, I really enjoyed that too. I thought it was well paced and quite quite exciting, and um, yeah, I, I liked it all. Actually, the the introduction to this film. Yep, yeah, I did too. So, what did you like about the film? Was it Roger Moore? Did he did he oh, talk to you? Always Roger Moore. Yeah, but
4: uh, I just like the, the great atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's, it was so different, you know.
0: Did you like the girl? Did you like Melina?
4: Yes, I did. The one with the arrow.
0: Yeah, yeah. The bow, yeah.
4: Yeah, I, I don't I don't think I've ever seen her in, in a movie
0: before or after. Well, she, she's a French actress, Carol Bouquet, and she has been in other films, but admittedly, they're ones that I don't know very well. Um, she yeah. does a lot of French films, so...
4: I can't remember, you know, the, the Greek guy, the good guy. He, did, he was in a lot of films.
0: Yeah, the character Columbo. Yeah.
4: He was...
0: Uh, Played by Top And
4: uh, the position of that blonde, the German guy, he always takes that same sort of a part, doesn't he? Bond was always shooter.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I hadn't... Uh, Eric Kriegler that was the character's name. Eric who? Kriegler, I think, was his name, wasn't it? The
4: uh, He's German, isn't
0: he? The biathlete. Yeah, I don't know the actor at all. I can only tell you the character's name. No,
4: but... Well, I remember in... During the war, he was always had a German
0: a role as, as a German, you know, nasty guy. Who the um, the young man? Yeah, he was in movies during the war. No. Well, no, but he portrayed. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. Right, he he wasn't in the movie. He wasn't in the war. He was in a movie portraying the war. Okay, right. So whenever they needed a Nazi, he, would but be he a was. But he was
4: always always the same guy,
0: you know. The same sort of guy, yeah. Well, the James Bond, the James Bond franchise has a lot of those white German, blonde-haired, blue-eyed assassin types. Yeah, but that was Hitler move, Hitler movement, remember? Yeah. The brown shirts.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll have to ask it's Josh true. and Jeff about that. I mean, I'm not doubting it is, but I'll have to ask them yeah. about that because I don't know that that actor was in uh, too many World War II films, but maybe he was.
4: Well, uh, he to portrayed it. Yeah,
0: always. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, uh, any any movie I saw him in, he was always a, a German.
0: Well, he looks that way, doesn't he? Yeah, There's a word for it though. Assassin. Assassin, right on. You got it. So did you did you find the um, the car chases exciting?
4: Oh, and the little streets.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that little yellow bug was adorable. Well, it's funny because you said that you liked the grease scenery, and I felt as though that car chase was pretty pretty authentic, you know? Obviously, it was a little hammed up, but I didn't mind that. I thought it was quite fun. <laughs>
4: exactly, and the streets were so narrow. I, if there was another car coming, don't know what they would have done. Well, remember, he did on the side of a curve and rolled over.
0: That's right, yeah.
4: Yeah, that was, that was great,
0: too. Mm-hmm. I like the underwater scenes. Oh, really? Okay. What did you like about those? I just liked to to look at them swimming, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. You didn't find them too slow.
4: No, but there was a city there, wasn't it?
0: That's right. It was
4: underwater too. What's what was the name of it? I mean, I've never read about that before.
0: Well, you might be thinking about Atlantis, but I don't think that that was Atlantis. No, I don't think so either. There were just some ruins underwater that her father, the marine archaeologist, was working at. Yeah. Yes. And and the pillars. Yeah, the mosaic grounding, the floor and all that. Yeah,
4: yeah. on the floor. Right, well, exactly. There, that young skater, there was absolutely no need to have her in the film at
0: all. No, she was quite silly, wasn't she?
4: Yeah. And I, and that, that little bit of, you know, hip, her being... Um, Trying coming out to, to bond and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, that was kind of dull. I didn't
4: I didn't get that part at all. I
0: just thought that but that was all unnecessary. It was. It was kind of unnecessary. Because was
4: nothing. To, he never added anything to the story, did
0: it? It no, it didn't. Uh, the only reason I can think why they wanted that in there is because. This guy Christatos needed to have some sort of a front to make it look like you know he had an honorable pursuit you know behind his crime or rather disguising his crime. So maybe in addition to all of his business, he was also trying to help the future of some young athletes. You know, I, I, I could see that, but it didn't make any sense for her to. Think. I
4: think I think it was more than that. He had remember she said to uh, Bond that he still he thought that she was still a virgin.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
4: You know, and so, you uh, have to come on to her.
0: You think so, that hey. That sort of yeah. way. You think that Christados was actually after her, like, sexually?
4: I did, uh, yeah, I did. I thought he was sort of waiting for her to grow up.
0: Yeah, you could be right, because she, yeah. she said that to him at the end. Yeah, uh, She did call him a creep and that uh, she knew what he wanted, that type of thing.
4: Yeah. That's the way I, I read the whole, that, you know, relationship between the two of them. Anyway, I didn't like him, but, but of course that, that's the way that movie was made, wasn't it, really?
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: For you, you'd know, eventually you think, think that he was a crook too.
0: Yeah, and it, it fit the time of the filmmaking with a lot of um, East-West sensibilities and, you know, post-war Germanic yeah. um, kind of assassins. Like, there's a lot of that stuff in the 80s, isn't there, with the whole di- division of Berlin and all of that stuff?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like that, uh, the dark guy the...
0: the um, what was his name? The guy who kept eating the pistachios, Bond's friend, ultimately his friend. Yeah. Yeah, Colombo. Columbo, that's mm-hmm. what I to remember. God,
4: yeah. every time I say th- Colombo, now, I think about the other one that's on.
0: <laughs> Peter Falk. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, what did you think of the music in this film? Because it's, it's not... Well, a... I
4: like and I like the song too.
0: You like the music and the song, uh, huh?
4: Yeah, I like, the song was lovely, for your eyes only. And the one who sang it had a lovely voice.
0: Sheena Easton.
4: Is that who it was, isn't
0: it? That's right, yeah. She, yeah
4: she had, you know, it was, it was
0: uh, pleasant. Yeah, she's just up the road. Well, she's not still, I don't imagine, but she's from um, just north here, west of Scotland. Really? Yeah, she's a Scottish-born singer. It doesn't sound Scottish. Well, I mean, she's singing, you know, with a... a That's gamp- true. Gamp- I mean, they, they do Song accent, they? so... Yeah. What did you think of the um, the rock climbing stuff at the end?
4: Okay, <laughs> I don't like heights, but I mean, it, it looked so big, and yet, you know, when he when he was, they were close up to us. Mm-hmm. It was almost like a plate, you know. There was nothing for him to hold on to.
0: Yeah, the cutaway shots did show that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But you say you don't like heights, so does that mean that you found it uh, a suspenseful scene to watch?
4: Well, no, I, you know when, when he opened up the, the, the trap door uh-huh. and looked down? Yeah. That's what I felt.
0: <laughs> Queasy.
4: <laughs> yeah, that and, and, you know, the, uh, when they were climbing outside the, the
0: mountain. Do you remember? But it,
4: it was, you know, portrayed as, as huge and was probably only a little
0: lump. Well, no, it was a proper climb. The, um, the stuntman who stood in for Roger Moore did do the climbing, and he did do that 50-meter drop, you know, when...
4: Did you really? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, he did that for real, yeah.
4: Where did you get all this information?
0: <laughs> well, research... <laughs> you were there, were you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. At two years old, I was there. <laughs> yes. But no, it, uh, and you know what? The, the, the guy that did the stunt work in that rock climbing drop is the same guy who jumped off the cliff and did the parachute jump for uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. You remember that? Yes, I do. He's the same That's man. Something. Yeah.
4: Well, he gets paid for that, I hope.
0: <laughs> yeah.
4: Big money at home.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he hopes so, but these guys... You know, a Anybody different... who
4: would jump off that kind of...
0: <laughs> I know, but it's... Oh, cool. It's a different I type don't, of I, person.
4: I guess Funny feeling in my stomach. Uh, I mean, you know, when he opened the trap door and then he looked down, then you could see you know, how far up they were.
3: Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like that. It was a horrible sensation of height.
0: Is that something that's been with you your whole life? Always. Always. Hmm. Huh. That's interesting. So if you were to be a Bond girl, then. You would not be a Bond girl like one of these action ones. You, never, you would just I never be, was able to do it. Now nah, you would just be bedded by Bond, would you? <laughs> That's <right>. Okay. Well. <laughs> what did you think about Melina's story? The fact that she was trying to get revenge uh, on her. Well, I can understand it. I mean, well, she was she saw her father and
4: her mother being shot,
0: and that that follows Can't the very. Do you understand
4: that? Of course, I, yes. I, yes, but you, I would want to do it anyway.
0: Yeah, just kill him. And that follows very closely to the, the, the short story For Your Eyes Only as well. Yeah. Which is nice. And, and the fact that she was a,
4: a proficient
0: uh,
4: archer, was not she?
0: Yeah, she was. She could certainly work yep. that bow. Oh, he's hit the target anyway. Um, do you okay. Think, do you think that Roger Moore is looking his age here? Like he's about 52?
4: Not really. I, I,
0: I, no, I don't I never get tired looking at him. Who
4: said he's getting old?
0: Well, it's just that he was pretty long in the tooth by the time this film came out. The critics of the time were starting to say that he was looking older than James Bond should, and he does two more films after this as well. Well, I've
4: never seen the films um, with Roger Moore that I thought he was too old for Bond.
0: Well, that's good. You don't have a problem with it? You don't think Roger Moore's looking too old in this one?
4: No, I don't have a problem with that at all. No, I, it's, it's, I mean, as long as they keep... <laughs> Keep the story, for me, that's all, that's all I care.
0: So your feelings on For Your Eyes Only are pretty positive, then? You enjoyed the music?
4: Oh, well, yeah, I, I thought, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I really did.
0: You liked the action. And I liked the, you know, the, the islands. You really like the log, mm. don't you?
4: Well, I, I, I do. I get anything in the water, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. You tend to like I, that, I remember
4: thinking that I'd love to be on a boat like that all the time.
0: Yes, it would be nice. Although yeah, where her parents lived aboard the ship. That was great, wasn't it? That looked really nice. Yeah. What about the boat that pulls Bond and Molina over the corals? Do you remember that part?
4: Oh yeah, that was that was nasty. It was. They were trying to bait sharks, weren't they?
0: Yeah, that's right.
4: What a what a horrible way to die.
0: Oh, I know. Yeah.
4: I wonder who
0: thinks about all these things <laughs> well Ian Ian Fleming thought about that because he put it into his second book Live and Let die that's a scene Oh, that's just, that's just right well it's funny just just hearing you talk about this I think that maybe along with Goldfinger this is one of the favorite one of your favorite films that we've looked at so far you seem to be quite positive oh yes I, yeah. if, if you want to put it down that way yes yeah, sure am I right in saying that this is going to be more towards the top than the, than the middle? Oh, yeah. Yes, I liked everything about it. I'm good. And you remember watching yeah. it, do you, when it first came out? Yeah, you know, I remember
4: when I uh, when I uh, first saw it, that how much I liked it.
0: Yeah. Well, this is two Roger yeah. Moore films we've done in a row now, and uh, yeah. who knows, we might get another one yet, but when we finished our conversation on Saturday, I'll give you a call and let you know what your next mission is. Okay, dear. All right. Thank you for your comments on "For Your Eyes Only." Yes. Good talking with you. Yes, it was a lovely time, dear dear. Bye bye, darling.
2: Even Double OGO Geo uh, gives uh, "For Your Eyes Only" the seal of approval. Yeah. Yeah, she
0: really seemed to like it.
1: Yeah, and uh, and she liked uh, Melina.
0: She did like Malena, yeah. Granio is a sucker, though, for the you know the, the the blue water and the nice sandy beach and the travelogue. As I said, you know, she does like when yeah, cool. when the film takes her somewhere.
1: Remember how we talked in with Quantum of Solace and how it was so quick? This this one really sort of lets you sort of feel where you are.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you kind of you kind of like uh, take it as like a fine wine, you know, like it it just you just let let it kind of overwhelm you.
0: Well, the word we used in the past is linger, and I think we're lingering linger, again, aren't yeah, yeah. we? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Nothing surprised you about that thing, guys?
2: Uh, I, I was kind of, I'm a little happy, I'm happier that she enjoyed it, yeah. uh, more so like, I kind of wanted to make sure that, because I know that some of the films I've talked about before, I thought she really enjoyed them, but then I get the kind of the more modern response to those movies now from her, and it's almost like the complete opposite of what she felt when I, when we first saw them and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad for your Eyes only, you know, stayed the test of time for her.
0: Good stuff, yeah. And this is one I remember watching with her as well, uh, as I said earlier. So it's, uh, it's kind of, it's nice to hear her still have those memories, or even if they were just, you know, relived.
2: Yeah, I, I yeah. You go back to your child, my childhood, and I remember, you know, the keel hauling sequence and watching that with her. I remember Melina with her crossbow and, and Locke and, and all that kind of stuff. You
0: know, it all kind of fits together.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there
0: you go. There's, uh, there's one critic's interpretation at least. <laughs> yeah Right then Josh so uh, just before we do a roulette and welcome Jeff back in for that let's let's talk about what Ian Fleming would have thought of for your eyes only. For my part, I think he would have been pleased with the treatment of the two short story pieces, uh, at, at kind of how they roll out. And we'll say more about that source material inclusion, but I think he would have been happy with that. I think he probably nice. also would have liked the, the kind of the Soviet angle on this, the subtlety about the, the deliberate sinking. And I think he probably would feel this is a good, good film. He probably liked Blofeld's, quote-unquote, Blofeld's death as well. He'd probably uh, see that as a nice F.U. to McClory, too. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, if, if by the time Blofeld was on his way out, he was wearing, you know, Japanese samurai stuff and Bond was dropping from weather balloons, then he probably wouldn't mind something <laughs> like this.
2: <laughs> good point. Um, I, I think I agree. I think he would find this a good adaptation of Eyes Only and Risiko. And I, how they put the stories together, I think he'd really appreciate I do think, though, Ian Fleming would have blown his brains out to Bill Connie's soundtrack. I wonder. Yeah, you think so. You don't think he'd be... I mean, it, it, it isn't subtle, that's for sure. Yeah. He seems more of someone who would like Barry or even like Hermann, you know what I mean? Like, it just seems, in terms of his, of, of how action films are scored, or mm-hmm. or someone
0: like uh, Tompkin, right? So perhaps but it's i guess it's not fair to say really because fleming never lived into the 80s we can only judge no. him from what he wrote and from how he lived and from how he he certainly you know how he how he responded to his environment that we know but i think that he would have tolerated the uh, the kind of saccharine bits of it i think he would ha- he would have hated bb doll <laughs> oh yeah oh he would have he really wouldn't have liked that i don't think in any of his stories we have this sort of uh infantile humor there's not really a lot of infantile stuff is there although there there is diamonds are forever with the Spectreville train and that stuff but yes that's about as close that that's really more lampooning america though isn't it 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 really is yeah
2: exactly so Mm -hmm. was she like kind of like the only kind of american caricature that was in this bond film i
0: i I don't know it's hard to say yeah but she i think yeah i think you're right I, i think he really would have disliked her found her deplorable
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I kind of wanted to see like what what Fleming's Bond would, would have said, like in his stream of consciousness, you know, when, when, in, in that sequence. I want to I want Fleming to write when he first meets BB doll, like in Free Rise Only, the movie and see
0: how he would write that <laughs> Bond's response to her. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, we we do have two short stories here to talk about and also a scene from Live and Let Die. The first excerpt from the source material I'm going to share is indeed from For Your Eyes Only, the title. Now this story follows very closely the first part or the Melina Havelock part of the story. Havelock's parents are very wealthy, very well-respected, and very close friends of M. And this is an important part of the short story. M sends Bond on a mission without saying, I want you to go kill these people. uh, Because there's a bigger picture of this guy Von Hammerstein buying up land in Cuba and the West Indies in an effort to kind of hide his criminality and his behaviors. And he goes after... Gonzalez, one of his agents, goes after Havelock's home and estate because it's a beautiful piece of land. And this is also, I sense, having read into Fleming's life in Jamaica, I also sense that there's sort of a, a fear of uh, of maybe, maybe big business metaphorically represented by this, you know, this Banana Republic uh, dictator, the criminal guy. Yeah, wanting to or or threatening to come in and and ruin his lifestyle by you know taking over properties like Fleming's own Goldeneye and I wonder if there's maybe something something in that but Havelock's parents are killed when they refuse to give up the property Van Heimerstein is going to take it anyway uh Melina uh although she's not named Melina is she in the in the short story is it Julia I think or it was Judy isn't it Judy Havelock Judy Hadlock, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> anyway, I, I think that Fleming would be pleased that the powerful, resourceful, I'll get there myself, take revenge and surprise everybody character he wrote, who's quite progressive for what Fleming was giving us in terms of female characters. I think she I think that he'd be happy with how she was represented, at least in the first half of of this film. And what I'm gonna to read to you now is just a short section from when Bond meets her. Bond is is creeping up. He's already uh he's already located the the house that Gonzalez's character and von Hammerstein's characters are kinda of all hanging around. It isn't a a big sort of sex party, drug party, poolside uh Spanish villa. It's it's instead uh a little resorted cabin, a nice luxurious little cottage out in the uh The northern parts of Vermont, yes, near the Canadian border, just
2: near the the Canadian border, yeah. Mm. And pointing out uh, for people who are listening, there is a where I am in Ottawa, uh, in particular, there is a uh, an independent filmmaker here who's been interested in trying to uh, adapt for your eyes only. Because it's one of those stories now, I guess it's in the public domain and not really the property of E.ON per se, but trying to adapt um, Free Rise Only because it's considered like the Canadian James Bond Fleming story because part of the story is set in Ottawa where Bond is basically smuggled from Ottawa across the American
0: border into Vermont.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And it'd be interesting to see if that ever comes to production it has the light of day. I know that there was some yes. hot talk about it a couple of years ago, but there hasn't really been much since. No, there hasn't. Uh, the, the one I heard was involved is this guy Brett Kelly, uh, who
2: he did, did some. Uh, he did a well-known, I guess, indie uh, Canadian indie film um, in Ottawa called "Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter." Hmm. And uh, I had the film myself. And uh, I'm uh, and uh, oh, actually, no. I, I apologize. Um, I'll just write that back. The director of "Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter" was actually Lee DeMar. Um, who, now he's 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 a, he's an a, he's a uh, an acquaintance of Brett Kelly. But I don't believe that um, Lee DeMar is, is, in, is, is involved with um, the Fear Eyes Only.
0: Well, let's try to get an update on that for uh, next episode, maybe. Okay. So at this point in the short story, uh, Bond is about to be intercepted by... Uh, Havelock. Both of them are after von Hammerstein for very different reasons, but both of them are kind of staking his property out in the uh, Vermont forests. And uh, there's, a, there's lots of animals running around this scene too, which makes it quite interesting. You might oh, yeah, remember... Like chipmunks and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the girl looked like a beautiful unkempt dryad in ragged shirt and trousers. The shirt and trousers were olive green, crumpled and splashed with mud and stains and torn in places. And she had bound her pale blonde hair with a golden rod to conceal its brightness for her crawl through the meadow. The beauty of her face was wild and rather animal with a wide sensuous mouth, high cheekbones and silver gray, disdainful eyes. There was the blood of scratches on her forearms and down one cheek and a bruise and puffed and slightly blackened the same cheekbone. The metal features of a quiver full of arrows showed above her left shoulder. Apart from the bow, apart from the bow, She carried nothing but a hunting knife at her belt, and at her other hip, a small brown canvas bag that presumably carried her food. She looked like a beautiful, dangerous customer who knew wild country and forests and was not afraid of them. She would walk alone through life and have little use for civilization. Bond thought she was wonderful. He smiled at her. He said softly, reassuringly, I suppose you're Robina Hood? My name's James Bond. He reached for his flask and unscrewed the top and held it out. Sit down and have a drink of this, fire water and coffee. And I've got some biltong. Or do you live on dew and berries?" She came a little closer and sat down a yard from him. She sat like a red Indian, her knees splayed wide and her ankles tucked up high under her thighs. She reached for for the flask and drank deeply with her head thrown back. She handed it back without comment. She didn't smile. She said thanks grudgingly and took her arrow and thrust it over her back to join the others in the quiver. She said, watching him closely, "'I suppose you're a poacher? The deer hunting season doesn't open for another three weeks but you won't find any deer down here. They only come so low at night. You ought to be higher up during the day. Much higher. If you like, I'll tell you where there are some. Quite a big herd. It's a bit late in the day, but you could still get to them. They're upwind from here, and you seem to know about stalking. You don't make much noise. Is that what you're doing here? Hunting? Let's see your license. Her shirt had buttoned down breast pockets. Without protest, she took out from one of them the white paper and handed it over. The license had been issued in Bennington, Vermont. It had been issued in the name of Judy Havelock. There was a list of types of permits. Non-resident hunting, non-resident bow and arrow had been ticked. The cost of an $18.50, payable to Fishing Game Service Montpellier, Vermont. Judy Havelock had given her age as 25 and her place of birth as Jamaica. Bond thought, God almighty. He handed the paper back. So that was the score. He said with sympathy and respect, You're quite a girl, Judy. It's a long walk from Jamaica. And you were going to take him on with your bow and arrow? You know what they say in China, before you set out on revenge dig two graves. But have you done that, or did you expect to get away with it? The girl was staring at him. Who are you? What are you doing here? What do you know about it? Bond reflected. There was only one way out of this mess, and that was to join forces with the girl. What a hell of a business, he said resignedly. I've told you my name. I've been sent out from London by Scotland Yard. I know all about your troubles, and I've come out here to pay off some of the score and see that you're not bothered by these people." In London, we think that the man in that house might start putting pressure on you about your property, and there's no other way of stopping him. So that's uh, part of their conversation when they first meet. Yeah. It's kind of a similar
2: situation, although a, a little more, what's the word, um, I guess, minimized in the film version.
0: Yeah. Now you know I did have a section also from Risico, which I was going to read, but I think I won't. I think what I'll do is just maybe talk with you about that for a moment or two, and and then go on and reading reading part of the live and let die section. But Risico is, of course, a very different short story. What what do you remember of it? I remember Venice. I remember smugglers. Um, Same kind of like.
2: The whole Colombo, Christatis mm-hmm. dynamic is sort of in there. I also believe that like there's almost like a variation of Countess Liesel in, in the story, correct?
0: That's right. There is, yes. There certainly is. And that that sort of Columbo playing Christatos and christatos playing Columbo off, you know, Cristatos wants Bond to do his killing for him essentially, because if he can remove Columbo, then his work in the Adriatic will be easier, right? Essentially. Yes. And Bond is there on, you know, to, to, to look into this type of stuff. But the scene that I was going to read, which, which plays out beautifully on the film is the whole dinner, the recorded dinner conversation where, um, Colombo has got the conversation between Cristados and Bond recorded, and then he pulls Bond in, and they have the conversation about who's really in charge and who's really the villain here. You know, it's it's quite it's quite a really good scene in the story. It's tense. It's a great story, Risiko, and I think Fleming would be pleased that that scene had been so carefully and I think respectably adapted for the film. I agree. But the section that I'm going to read to close off our source material, how would Fleming have responded stuff, which we like to do each episode, is from Live and Let Die. It is, of course, the climax of the book, which we have in our film, For Your Eyes Only, when Bond and uh, Molina are tied together during the keel hauling. Now, you, you liked the scene quite a bit, didn't you? It was
2: very well I thought it was very well done and uh, it's pretty it's pretty exciting I always wondered you know whether those it was those actors that were underwater that whole time, and now I realized that it was actually stuntmen and that they used the whole thing with the the bubbles and the blowing um and the you know and the and the wind blowers and whatnot to make to pull it off so um I'm amazed at how they they managed to pull it off and I'm also
0: you know I, I, and how it just how great it looks on film and do you know that the sharks were tranquilized? <laughs> I did not know that yeah they were yeah. Anyway, this this part of the story, uh, Bond has successfully infiltrated and made difficult the life and work of this Harlem gangster Mr. Big who also has people convinced that he is a voodoo uh, spirit and he he's able to wield a lot of influence in the black community by threatening and frightening people into crime and you know doing his bidding. He he is a drug pusher. He, he does hustling. He does prostitution as well. He gets a lot of stuff on the streets in America and Bond is basically uh, working with the C CIA and uh, to, to kind of bust them out a little bit, I guess you could say. Is that fair? I mean, is that, is that a fair quick rundown of what's going on? Yeah, that, that summarizes it well. Right. Well, at this particular point, Bond has done an incredible midnight swim across to Surprise Island, which is where Mister Big has his uh, his operations base, I guess you could say. And this under uh, this underwater swim from uh, from his. Uh, I think who is it he's with is he with Strangways yeah he's with Strangways isn't he that's right. He's at Strangway's, his k- kind of uh, home, and Bond is secretly going under the cover of night, and he passes barracudas and all sorts of animals, man. Like, it's another animal scene, this one. It's a great one, though. I oh, remember, yeah. It's a whole I and remember... A yeah. Pot and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Reviewing this book with you was really fun because we had a lot of fun with this scene. Anyway, Bond has been caught, okay? And he's there. The girl this time is not Molina, of course. It's Solitaire, who was uh, Mr. Big's sort of... Um, what would you call her? A medium, a visionary, a tarot yeah. card reader, uh, priestess. Vis-eer. Yeah, yeah, priestess. Yeah, priestess. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, Bond's been caught, and this is Mister Big explaining what's going to happen. Let me illustrate to you by example how my mind works. We will take the method I've decided upon by which you are both to die. It's a modern variation on the method used in the time of my kind patron, Sir Henry Morgan. In those days, it was known as keel hauling. Pray continue," said Bond, not looking at Solitaire. We have a power van on board the yacht, continued Mr. Big as if he was a surgeon describing a delicate operation to a body of students, which we use for trawling for shark and other big fish. Now this power van, as you know, is a large, buoyant torpedo-shaped device which rides on the end of a cable, away from the side of a ship, and which can be used for sustaining the end of a net and drying it through the water when the ship is in motion, or if fitted with a cutting device, for severing the cables of moored mines in time of war. I intend, said Mr. Big in a matter-of-fact discursive tone of voice, to bind you together to his line streamed from this paravan and to tow you through the sea until you're eaten by sharks. He paused, and his eyes looked from one to the other. Solitaire was gazing wide-eyed at Bond, and Bond was thinking hard, his eyes blank and his mind boring into the future. He felt he ought to say something. You're a big man, he said, and one day you will die a big, horrible death. If you kill us, that death will come soon. I've arranged for it. You're going mad very fast, or you would see what our murder will bring down on you. Even as he spoke, Bond's mind was working fast, counting hours and minutes, knowing that the big man's own death was creeping with the acid in the fuse around the minute hand toward the personal hour of final rendezvous. But would he and Solitaire be dead before that hour struck? There would not be more than minutes, perhaps seconds, in it. The sweat poured off his face onto his chest. He smiled across at Solitaire. She looked back at him opaquely, her eyes not seeing him. Suddenly, she gave an agonized cry that made Bond's nerves jerk. "'I don't know,' she cried. "'I can't see. It's, "'It's so near, so close. "'There's so much death, but... "'Solitaire,' shouted Bond, terrified that whatever strange thing she saw in the future "'might give a warning to the big man. "'Pull yourself together.' "'There was an angry bite in his voice. "'Her eyes cleared. "'She looked dumbly at him, without comprehension, and the big man spoke again. "'I'm not going mad, Mr. Bond,' he said. "'And nothing you have arranged will affect me. "'You will die beyond the reef, and there will be no evidence.' I shall tow the remains of your bodies until there's nothing left. That's part of the dexterity of my intentions. You may also know that shark and barracuda play a role in voodooism. They'll have their sacrifice, and Baron Samadhi will be appeased. That will satisfy my followers. I also wish to continue my experiments with carnivorous fish. I believe they only attack when there's blood in the water, so your bodies will be towed from the island. The paravan will take them over the reef. I believe you will not be harmed inside the reef. The blood and offal that is thrown into these waters every night will have dispersed or been consumed. But when your bodies have been dragged over the reef, then I'm afraid you will bleed, your bodies will be very raw, and then we'll see if my theories are correct. The big man put his hand behind him and pulled the door open. I'll leave you now, he said, to reflect on the excellence of the method I've invented for your death together. Two necessary deaths are achieved. No evidence is left behind. Superstition is satisfied. My followers pleased. The bodies are used for scientific research. That's what I meant, Mr. James Bond, by an infinite capacity for taking artistic pains. He stood in the doorway and looked at them. A short but very good night to you both. So we should maybe have said, in preface to that little excerpt, that Bond had already put mines on the hull of his ship, hadn't he? Like a limpet mine, yeah, that's right. Limpet mines, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think that this film did definitely try to pull back And get some source material in there quite deliberately quite respectfully uh but it it wasn't committed obviously entirely to those to those texts do you think Mm -hmm. that in the film version if they had done the thing with the limpet
2: mine like maybe somehow bond puts a limpet mine on chrysato's uh like let's say for example like they get they get onto the triana and then as they're boarding and then they get there and then at that moment chrysato shows up shoots a machine gun or something from his yacht at, uh, at, at, the Triana. And then, and then Chris has been board the ship. Bond manages to, I don't know, set up, put that charger or, or whatever that he got from the ATAC and set that off somewhere. And then you're waiting for that whole sequence for, during the keel hall for them, to, for the bomb to go off to explode. Do you think that would have been a more concise ending for, for your eyes only concise, perhaps, um, but, but maybe too loyal to another book, perhaps. I guess that's probably the reason.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe too loyal, um and it wouldn't really have clued up the. It, it wouldn't really have clued up the attack storyline, would it? No, it's true because you have the resolve with Gogol and you know uh, arriving on the mountaintop
2: and everything like that. So yeah, and and to, and to be fair, I think that scene is is, is just is brilliant suspense, and I like the fact that they don't kill everybody on a board like they would in a modern action movie. Um, not mm-hmm. a aboard, but in the monastery, you know, like they they take all the the mercenaries hostage in in their bedchambers and stuff like that. That's right. I just, thought, I just thought it was just a very original kind of scene, despite you know how bored some of the movie critics felt at the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm pleased with it. I, I was I was pleased with how these scenes worked out. Uh, in the film. I I don't dislike the ending of the film. I don't necessarily think that For Your Eyes Only would have ended better that way, but it could have ended that way. There's no reason why the scriptwriters couldn't have taken the ending of this novel and tried to work it around. But again, it's not satisfying for Melina's story. No, But ne- neither was the ending of this film, you know, apart from the fact that she she won out and sleeping with James Bond, which maybe is where the the, the screenwriters wanted all this to go anyway. Like you said, you know, he had to get off of someone.
2: I suppose, yeah, but it's almost like if I if I'm going to support the film, you know, in a stronger way, it's almost like she rewards, she wants to have sex with Bond at the end, like she's like, you know, let's do it. Like I found that they did give her some agency in that way. Yeah, like, they I, did.
0: She wasn't. She wasn't. Yeah, because I think you're right. Forward. I think Bond. Bond was was very kind of coy around her in the sense that he wasn't looking to take advantage of this girl he was quietly respectful of what she was going through even if he didn't care as much about her revenge as he did his own motives I think he was at least respectful and kind to them and you're absolutely right using the word forward she did motivate and kind of uh, uh, sh- she did activate their sex at the end you know it's coming but at least she's asked for it and she she's wanting and willing for it to happen she's not taken by him
2: yeah, exactly. I know I made that joke about, you know, that she rewards her new, her new surrogate father figure with like sex or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. that was kind of cutting. I guess on my end, it'd be a little bit harsh, but, uh-huh.
0: I mean, you know, I mean, the nuances can be derived. They can be derived, but we we have to be careful because we're two men deriving these nuances in a yes. in a film that while it plays soft power to women doesn't really give this character a lot of agency. It, no. it starts with giving her a lot and maybe realizes, oh, this is too much for the time. Let's not be this adventurous and bold and correct. Let's uh, let's let's just keep it a Bond film, not a Bond and Melina film. You know, But that's too bad. That's ultimately to the film's detriment. This could have been a nine for story if they had tightened up on that Melina stuff and really went somewhere cool with it. And I think Melina would have been remembered as a much more celebrated and powerful and deserving figure than, than what we see of her. You know? But yeah. that's okay. This is where Bond girls were at the time. And this is still a push in favor of a stronger Bond girl. So it's it's great for 1981, but not great, really. Yeah, this, lead, this this
2: you know the culmination of this whole of this whole build up to a kick ass Bond girl obviously ends with
0: uh, Tanya Roberts in A View to a Kill, right? <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, we're gonna see that soon. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that on that note, uh, that ends the. Uh, <laughs> that ends the. <laughs> that ends our source material. I don't think she's in any of the books, really. Who Stacy Sutton? Not it no, not even her uh, I don't think the spirit of her. I think even Fleming's worst female character is better than her. <laughs> BB Doll is better than her. Uh, no, no, no. No. But you know what? Funny. Funny, isn't it? Because there is a template for the Stacy Sutton, you know, this total airbrain character, useless, useless, helpless girl who somehow like a geo what is she? She's a geologist, right? As if I'd ever believe that. Yeah. Hey, let's get uh, let's get Jeff back in here and and rule this and roll this <laughs> rule this roulette. <laughs> I think you it's time get your ass in here. I think it's time I think it's time we stop talking. Yeah. All right. Good work there on the source material. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, gentlemen, here it is. Time for us to open the doors of the casino and roll the roulette to see what Bond by Numbers we'll be looking at next episode. What are your thoughts? What are your hopes? What are your dreams for the next film to be reviewed? I think it would be cool to see From Rush who we'll Love again.
2: Um, another Connery or even more would be welcome, but also I wouldn't mind getting that last Dalton or Craig down too. To
1: be honest, I want to see Live and Let Die or um, this, The Spy Who Loved Me. Cool, cool. The Spy Who Loved Me has been in my mind this week, and I don't know if it's
0: because I've watched this and I'm, I'm trying to remember just how good was this part, how good was that part. Uh, but you know what? I'm, uh, I've am i stopped now placing bets with this roulette because she's fickle <laughs> and she does what she wants.
2: You know something, you're, you're, uh, BB, you're fickle? <laughs> we just called her roulette wheel, <laughs> BB, yeah. from now no, on. I'm not, I'm
0: sure. not, not going to dedicate that name towards anything in, in this uh, adventure of ours, I don't think. Right, open up those uh, doors there, Josh, and uh, let's let's get this wheel spinning, shall we? Inside wheels going, boys. Balls running. Let's see what we're gonna watch. Oh, eager to stop this time, but it started up again. Well, I can tell you. I can tell you that it is neither of the films that we cited or actors that we asked for. This is Red Nineteen is our next James Bond film, so it's back to the world of
3: Brosnan.
0: Okay. Hmm.
2: And Sophie Marceau and ugh, Denise Richards.
1: Oh yeah, Christmas was it? Christmas Jones, what's her name?
0: Yeah, Christmas Jones. Oh, I've forgotten about that actually. Okay, also known as well, Charlie Sheen also known as Charlie Sheen's nightmare. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Let's <laughs> Okay, guys, we gotta do it. We gotta get to it, so here we go. Yeah. He's probably her nightmare as well, though. So I enough. think I think I saw an episode of the Dog Whisperer when she was on it. Is this possible? That's possible. Uh, when he's do, like, celebrity it. dogs whose owners are all you, messed is, up.
1: You mean is that the one with Caesar Millan?
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's very possible. The world is not enough. Oh boy. Okay guys, that was a good show. Uh, We all seem to see For Your Eyes Only in very similar ways. A positive film, a great inclusion, Roger Moore's good, good acting for the most part, an interesting story even though it has its weaknesses, great on atmosphere, lots of fun, memorable things going on here. And while we are fans of the series, it's also important that, you know, we state objectively that this would be just a good, fun action film to watch. Absolutely. It's, I, I think, to me, it's one of the great 80s action films. Yeah, it's very good. All right, well, we'll have to wait and see then uh, what our next film holds. It is, of course, The World Is Not Enough. Well done, guys. Good show. Talk to you soon. Awesome. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.